And so, farewell to A-Rod. Will we ever see another fantasy baseball player like him? We'll ask Ron Chandler from ronchandler.com and ESPN next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 12th. It's show number 39 of the 2016 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday show for you. We will be talking with Ron Chandler from ronchandler.com and ESPN about the fantasy god called A-Rod, about embracing imprecision, why not to pay for saves, why he hates fab bidding, his studs and duds, and much more. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, looking at Adam Ottavino and Razel Iglesias' closing games, some changes in the St. Louis rotation and more. And from the American League, it's Jock Thompson, looking at Carlos Gomez being DFA'd by Houston, Nick Castellanos, Sonny Gray, and Cam Bedrosian all going to the DL, and more. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business, in the Minor League Minute, analyst Rob Gordon reports on Cincinnati third baseman Nick Senzel. In our playing time commentary, Ryan Bloomfield looks at Jet Bandy and Brett Anderson, two guys who could produce stretch-run profit in L.A. In our frequent flyers commentary, Alex Becky looks at Yankees outfielder Aaron Judge and Houston starter Joe Musgrove. In our weekend pitcher matchup segment, Greg Fishwick looks at four weekend matchups, including a Sunday interleague matchup of top righties, Arizona's Zach Greinke at Fenway to face Rick Porcello. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about using games remaining and opposition quality to make roster decisions. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We have a new member of the 3000 Hit Club. The 2-0. He throw to right, and deep, back goes Para to the wall, and it's off the wall! 3,000 is in right field, and Ichiro is racing for third! And he's done it! He's climbed the mountain, a triple, and he has arrived at 3,000! Congratulations to Ichiro Suzuki, the newest member of baseball's 3,000 hit club, and you know what this means? We gotta talk some baseball. You know, it's a funny story. When I first auditioned to join the staff at BaseballHQ.com, I was asked to submit a report on a particular player coming over from Japan and of course I determined after a great amount of research that the player would never amount to a hitter in the big leagues that player of course Ichiro Suzuki in the first inning of this Friday edition our League Watch News reports Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League and leading off it's the National League report and our old friend Harold Nichols Nick welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio thank you Patrick let's start by talking about some closers it's that time of the year when we're seeing some uh, roiling bullpens for one reason or another we've had some trades of course which we'll talk about in a second that have affected bullpens we've also seen some injuries and of course we've seen some poor performance uh, Adam Ottavino is one of the latter examples Carlos Estevez removed from the job because he just wasn't getting it done and Adam Ottavino 
Gambino takes over as the team's primary closer, according to manager Walt Weiss. Rob Carroll covered this for BaseballHQ.com in Playing Time Today. What's the story? Well, you know, Adam, Adam Odovino, we've been we've been kind of waiting for this, I think, since he came back from his Tommy John surgery in early uh, in early July. But uh, Estevez was pitching fine and, and not having too many problems. But suddenly, two two blowups in a row, and Odovino was in in the job and got his first save opportunity on Thursday night. Uh, pitched a perfect inning, struck out all three batters. Uh, he certainly has the chops to hang on to the job for the rest of the year. 180 BPV, 17 games so far, 15, uh, 13 innings pitched, 15 strikeouts, only three walks, a uh, zero earned run average, 0.92 whip. Uh, the guy's good. And he's not going to get a whole lot of save opportunities, perhaps in Colorado, but uh, he can he, he can do it there. A 71% ground ball rate, so... Uh, he doesn't have the fly ball problem in Colorado that a lot of folks have. Uh, a really fine pitcher and uh, certainly a, a potential source for save down the stretch. This is an interesting story because of the the, the speed with which Estevez fell out of favor. Uh, for a long time, he was doing okay. He was uh, after Jake McGee hurt his knee in June. Uh, Estevez looked really good in July. I think an ERA well under two. He had seven saves and seven tries. Then in his last two outings more recently, a couple of losses, uh, less than an inning pitch, seven earned runs. It's just like the the, the ground fell out from underneath him. It, it's such a um, it's such a, a volatile role to have if you're not uh, just one of those guys like uh, Mariano Rivera who can just uh, do it game in and game out. It's always something that you have to be worried about. It, it is indeed, and you know, it's uh, there. There are very few guys who uh, you, you don't have to worry about at all. And uh, I, for Colorado, especially, too, with Estevez, the, the problem was as Colorado approached the trade deadline, they decided they were buyers rather than sellers, uh, didn't trade off a bunch of guys. Uh, and then they hit this recent series with Texas and just uh, couldn't keep up. And the problem with Odovino is going to be, I think, at this point, is can Colorado get the game to him? They had two games this week when they went into at least the seventh inning with a lead, and by the ninth inning, they no longer had a lead, so there was nothing for for Ottavino to save. So that could be the problem is who's uh, who's ahead of him in the bullpen and can they get the game from their starter to their closer. Now I know some people will think, well, you know, at, at some point perhaps Estevez can get the job back, uh, but we should note that when McGee came back at once he was healthy, uh, they didn't give him the role back, and so uh, I guess we'll have to wait for Ottavino to pitch poorly before either of those guys gets a chance. It looks like Walt Weiss's philosophy is the guy who's doing the job keeps the job. Yeah, maybe, and it looks like McGee McGee pitched the eighth inning last night and was and was uh, successful. So you, we may we may see a situation where McGee is in the eighth and Ottavino in the ninth, as long as that is going to work, uh, keep working for uh, for Colorado. And uh, Ottavino had a pretty successful audition his first time through before he hurt himself. He had three saves and a win in six games pitched at the end of last year. So it's not like he's completely unfamiliar with pitching in that late game role. Right, that's true. I mean, he's done this before. Uh, he showed before that it's that he can do this, and so uh, uh, you know this is, this is a guy who's a pretty darn good pitcher, and I think uh, is worth worth rostering at this point from now to the end of the season. And if you're keeping score at home, and I don't know why I know this, but Ottavino in Italian means piccolo, the musical instrument. So. <laughs> <laughs> 
speaking of uh, closers who followed a favor quickly, Tony Singrani of the Reds had been doing pretty well as a closer, but then all of a sudden he blew up, and the next opportunity went to Razel Iglesias, and he got the save. And so the question is, what does this mean for Singrani, for Iglesias, for this wretched Cincinnati bullpen, and for fantasy players? Yeah, you're right. There's been no announcement, so we don't really know what's going on, although certainly there's been speculation all the way along that Iglesias had the uh, had the goods to do this if they give him the opportunity, and they did the other night, and he converted. So, but there's been no announcement that there's going to be a change at closer, uh, and so I think we'll just have to wait and see what uh, uh, what what the tide winds bring. But Iglesias is a really fine pitcher. He's been uh, they put him in the bullpen this year, as most people I'm sure know. He he really is, is a starter and probably will be a starter next season. Uh, but put him in the bullpen simply to keep his innings down after an early season injury. And 20 games, a uh, 56 innings pitch, been pitching in middle relief, 2.09 ERA, 1.16 whip. So been doing very, very well um, and uh, 109 BPV. But uh, he certainly can do it from here on, on for the rest of the season as a closer if they give him that opportunity. Yeah, and the other thing about this, Nick, is uh, we've attached this sort of mystique to the guy who's the closer, but really, in a lot of cases, any reasonably competent pitcher can get the job done because so many saves are relatively straightforward. You've got a two- or three-run lead, bottom part of the opponent's order is up, and in trots your closer, so-called, in a very low-leverage situation to just knock down three poor hitters and pick up this statistical anomaly called a save. Uh, and Razel Iglesias is not just an ordinary pitcher. I mean, his uh, his dom rate is up around ten, which is, uh, you know, it's not world class anymore. But uh, his uh, home run rate in that little park is 0.8. He's a good enough pitcher to get saves because saves aren't that hard to get once we get over the mystique of the you know the music that plays when the guy comes in and that kind of stuff. Generally, we're talking about guys who pitch the ninth inning and uh, pitch the ninth inning with a uh, with a one two three kind of uh, situation. Uh, not a guy who's coming in in the in the uh, eighth with the bases loaded and nobody out, and trying to keep inherited runner from scoring. So you're right. In most cases, that's what the the closer is doing is just just pitching, hopefully pitching a clean ninth uh, to get them out of the ball game. And like I say, practically anybody can do it. Uh, I also mentioned, Nick, that uh, some bullpens are changing in the National League because of trades, most notably in Chicago, where they had a pretty decent closer doing a good job in Hector Rondon. Then they acquire a role as Chapman. Rondon gets pushed down into the setup role. Bullpens columnist Doug Dennis argues that Hector Rondon is worth holding on to, even though he's not the closer anymore. Yeah, very definitely. If you look at it, this really good article that, that Doug wrote this week, uh, on closers and non-closers for the stretch run and looking at the projections for, for all of them from here on out. But, you know, Hector Rondon is a, is a really fine pitcher. Uh, here's a guy with a 2.85 XERA, 0.94 whip, uh, 10, 10 strikeouts per nine innings, uh, only two walks, so a 5.0 command ratio. A, a really fine, fine pitcher. And uh, he, he's not going to get the saves now in, in Chicago, but he's going to pitch a lot and uh, probably get a lot of guys out. And, and help ERA and whip. And those are things worth looking at at this point in the season, depending upon where you are in your league standings. And you know, I can actually update that command ratio. It's now closer to 10 as uh, as Rondon has pr- virtually eliminated walks. He's down to barely over one per nine innings. He is a terrific pitcher. And we can't overlook as well because he'll be pitching probably in fairly high leverage situations late in games. He could, of course, lose out on saves, as you suggest, but maybe he picks up a couple of wins. That uh, Chicago team can really score runs. So if he comes in to hold a lead, 
Gets the hold in the eighth inning. They score a couple runs. There you go. Instant win for Hector Rondon. Right. Very true. I mean, you're right. He's going to be in the, in the situation where, where he's more likely perhaps to pick up a win than the closer is. A lot more likely, and uh, of course, they pitch fairly deep into games as well, so a lot of things are lining up for Hector Rondon, and as Doug suggests, sometimes when guys lose this closer role, their owners are really eager to trade them for pennies on the dollar, and this might be an opportunity in your league if Hector Rondon's owner is a little bit uh, trigger-happy because of the change in role. Might be a, a great guy to pick up. Also a great guy to pick up in keeper leagues because Chapman's a free agent, I believe, at the end of the year as well. Yeah, he is. He is indeed. And, you know, the other thing to look at that, that you that you kind of uh, look at in these situations. Now, here was a guy, Hector Rondon, come, who'd been performing very, very well as a closer all year. No reason for him to lose his job. And so in comes the role as Chapman. And, uh, you know, what, what's, the, what's the guy thinking? Well, Hector Rondon has gone right ahead doing what he was doing. It doesn't seem to have bothered him one bit that he's in a different role, and he's been delivering. And you have to like a guy who does that, uh, puts the team ahead of his own. Uh, there are players I can think of who would have gone to the papers and said, this is, this is unfair, I feel maltreated or something like that. Yeah, he just he said, okay, give me the ball in the eighth inning and went out and got the job done. You have to like that. Uh, there's been a shakeup in St. Louis in the rotation triggered by Michael Waka being sent to the DL with right shoulder inflammation. Uh-oh. Uh, the Cardinals have already called up top prospect Alex Reyes to pitch in the bullpen, and they will be calling up Luke Weaver to start on Saturday. Uh, Baseball HQ has been covering this story extensively in playing time today. Reyes has already got his report in the minor league call-ups. Weaver will be profiled there as soon as his call-up is official. What's going on in St. Louis and where are the opportunities, Nick? Well, you know, Alex Reyes is a is a top prospect. We've got him listed as a 10-D prospect. That means a Hall of Fame, a Hall of Fame, potential Hall of Fame kind of pitcher if he can reach his ceiling. And um, at this point, St. Louis is going to put him in the bullpen and try not to tax that arm too much uh, and then use Weaver perhaps out of the out of the rotation. At least that seems to be the plan. Weaver's no slouch himself. I mean, Luke Weaver is a very fine pitcher. And uh, so, you know, he's a guy that would, I think, be worth picking up even before he actually throws his first pitch in the major leagues. The problem with Weaver this weekend is he's got he's got Chicago coming up as his first uh, his first opportunity, and that could be a very tough outing for him. So even if I were an owner and looking at what's going on, I wouldn't put a lot of stock in uh, uh, any problems he has against the Cubs because everybody has problems against the Cubs. Yeah, the Cubs are. It's a, it's going to be a test, and that's kind of interesting for a guy being called up for his first start to talk about throwing you into the lion's den right away. Uh, Luke Weaver is not. I don't think the pitcher that Alex Reyes is uh, in three minor league seasons. I I checked the, this, and uh, he's got a, about a eight point seven strikeout per nine dom rate. That that's okay, but it's not really good in the minor leagues, especially because you have to anticipate a little decline in that as he gets called up to the higher level. But he does have terrific control. 1.6 walks per nine and as a result an excellent command ratio of over five strikeouts per walks and he also gives up very few home runs my minor league data that i checked doesn't have ground ball fly ball splits but that few home runs makes me suggest he's probably a pretty good ground ball pitcher and for the minor leagues this year uh, he has uh, luke weaver 140 era 093 whip so he can get the job done all that said i'd still rather have alex reyes well, I think it would too, especially in a keeper kind of league. But from from here to the end of the year, Luke Weaver's an interesting speculation. I think, uh, you know, you've got to you've got to one of the things you've got to factor in. I think in all of this is how well do these teams deal with their pitchers? And St. Louis has a very good track record of uh, of dealing well with their pitchers, knowing what situation to put them in. 
uh, and how to get good, uh, good performance out of them. Yeah, you said a mouthful there. You have to trust the organization sometimes, and St. Louis is a pretty good organization to trust. I'm very curious to see Alex Reyes in the major leagues. 100-mile-an-hour fastball, really terrific curveball. Everybody likes his stuff tremendously. Uh, The knock on him, apparently, he's been uh, busted a couple of times and suspended for using pot, which can hardly be described as a performance-enhancing drug, but nonetheless is against the rules. So uh, maybe we have to see if, if he can uh, avoid the reefer madness, as the saying goes, and, and stay on the field. Yeah, very definitely. You have to worry about And you worry at that case, at that point, too, when, when a guy's in the situation that, that uh, Reyes is in and is busted for using pot uh, about the maturity level and whether he's, uh, you know, is he really ready for this? I mean, we're talking about a kid who's 21 years old here. Yes, and I vaguely remember being 21 years old, and I certainly had some growing up to do myself, and I wasn't standing in front of 50,000 people throwing a baseball while I was doing it. Uh, Stephen Nickrand in his Batting Buyer's Guide column will be of particular interest to Keeper and Dynasty owners as he has updated his Young Building Blocks column, a list with the most skilled bats age 27 or under, and by most skilled he means base performance value 50 or better, so far in 2016. Now, I saw Trey Turner on there, no surprise, Jake Lamb on there, no surprise. But I did raise my eyebrows, Nick, when I saw Stephen had included Philadelphia first baseman Tommy Joseph. Yeah, you know, Tommy Joseph is an interesting guy. And, you know, but, but, and I, and I picked him up in a league earlier this year and was kind of wondering, should I keep, should I keep Tommy Joseph? But, you know, Tommy Joseph has doing very well in a, as, as Stephen says, a semi regular role since the 1st of July. A 1.052 OPS, 111 BPV, and 76 at bats. Those are numbers that make you sit up and take notice. Uh, and, and especially when, when we're dealing here with a very young ball player who is, is hopefully going to develop uh, rather than regress over the course of the year. I mean, this guy is only 24 years old. So um, over the last month, Joseph has four home runs, nine RBIs, 242 batting average. Uh, looks like a uh, someone that you could, in a, in a keeper league, for example, begin to build uh, around as someone who may work himself into a regular role uh, and, and do extremely well at the major league level. The, the interesting thing about Joseph is he has a 138 plus PX against both left-handers and right-handers. So this is a guy who looks as though he could avoid a platoon role and may wind up as a regular major league first baseman. I did note that Stephen Nickran pointed to that uh, splits issue, right-handed, left-handed, and the power. And... Uh I looked into it a little further at BaseballReference.com. He has 11 home runs in uh, about 150 at-bats versus right-handers, which is a mid-to-high 30s pace over a full season. And against the left-handed, left-handed pitching, uh, a little lower, maybe the mid-30s. So he's actually better power hitter against his same side pitching right-handers. And he's also slugging 500 against both hands. So power-wise, I don't think there's an issue. Batting average and walk rate, however, is a little worse against uh, right-handed pitching. But overall, Nick, I think Tommy Joseph really looks ready to step up, and I'd like to have him on a roster. Yeah, I sure. I, I, I would too. I really like Tommy Joseph at this point, even though he's only playing part time. But if this, if you've got a role for a guy that sits in that situation, I mean, his projection for the rest of the year: uh, six home runs, eighteen RBIs, two forty six batting average. That's not bad at all. I guess the question is, Ryan Howard at first base, uh, how long does, do the Phillies let him continue to block the development of a potential star first baseman with plus power? Yeah, my guess is they won't continue to do it long. I mean, that, that's uh, the kind of thing that uh, uh, the Phillies are not going anywhere and are probably going to at some point get Howard out of the way so that Joseph can develop. Okay, Nick, thanks a million for helping us out with the National League, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you, Patrick. 
Harold Nichols is a BaseballHQ.com analyst and our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn over to the American League and BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, PD, good to be here. Let's start by talking about... Uh, to me, the biggest news of the week uh, was Carlos Gomez down in Houston. Uh, the Astros were really struggling offensively. Then they score 15 runs out of nowhere uh, in Minnesota on Thursday. And then they announced the very next day, Carlos Gomez designated for assignment, the equivalent of being cut, basically. So let's start by talking about Carlos Gomez. It's not that long ago he was a top five fantasy asset. Uh, what's the problem with Carlos Gomez all of a sudden? Yeah, it's it's kind of fascinating, isn't it? Uh, Carlos Gomez, I I think he had a three year stretch in 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 Milwaukee uh, where he batted I think two seventy eight and he averaged more than twenty homers and thirty bases. This was over a, 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 a or thirty stolen bases. This is over three years. He's done nothing since he came to Houston uh, mid season last year. I think he's hit uh, something like. Uh, 220. Uh, he was he was hitting 210 when he got released. Uh, 66% contact. That's fallen way off. He only had five homers through 300 at bats for the year. Um, the only thing within hailing distance of his better work is his running game. He stole 13 bases. He's still got some speed. Um, but you're right. That Houston outfield was awful, and they finally uh, they finally had seen enough of Carlos Gomez. And I understand all that, but doesn't it still surprise you that of, out of all the sort of questionable outfielders they have out there beyond uh, George Springer, I guess, that uh, Gomez would be the one to, t- to take the fall here? Yeah, well, they have, co- they have uh, uh, Rasmus on the, uh, on the DL. You know, he was their left fielder. And he'd gone three for, 66, three for his last 66 before he went on the DL. Apparently he has some kind of an ear problem or an ear assist, I think it is. Um, yeah, you know, Gomez, I think, had worn out his welcome. He wasn't doing very well in the field, too. He made a real questionable defensive play that had pretty much everybody talking. It almost looked like he wasn't even trying out there. Um, I think this was a, a long time in coming. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, you know, you're right. I, I, it's interesting. Houston, obviously, is, is trying to resuscitate its postseason hopes. They're now four or five games off the wild card, believe it or not, and they and they had almost caught Texas uh, uh, before they went into the slump two, three weeks ago. So in a sense, I think Gomez is partly a fall guy. I, I think you've got a good point there. So who's going to pick up all the playing time that Gomez had been credited for at BaseballHQ.com's depth chart? I just happened to be looking at it last week, and Gomez was still on the list for the lion's share of, of, a, of a third of that and now it's, he's gone. There's going to be a lot of playing time, a lot of at-bats to be spread around. Yeah, the guy who's going to play center field is obviously Jake Marisnik for now, and, and we all know about Marisnik. He's, uh, he's, he's, he's got his own contact problems. He's a defensive wizard. He's very good out there, which is I think was part of the trade-off they, they considered in, in dumping Gomez. Um, Marisnik hasn't been bad recently. He has his contact rate up to 80% uh, over the, in the second half through, through about 70 at-bats, and he's, he's his hit rate is has been elevated. Um, the real question is how long is that going to last? Uh, he'll also steal a base, but uh, uh, it, this is a guy who's also hit in the low 200s and has only shown flashes of, of power throughout his career, so who knows how long that will last. Uh, fortunately, I guess uh, Springer can play center field too, but they have to find help on the corners. Um, I, I personally like Tony Kemp a little in here. Uh, he's not a world beater, but his plate skills are very good. He'll take a walk. He'll make contact. 
Um, if he can get on a roll, that's a guy who, who if you're looking for batting average and on-base percentage, uh, fantasy owners might want to consider. When I look at Marisnik, I see somebody I think who might have been told or decided on his own to just simply alter his approach entirely. In the first part of the year, April through June, he had a 72% contact rate, which is low but not terrible by league standards anymore, sad to say, and a hard contact index well under 100, and his hit rate was very low, and he had a 45% fly ball rate as against a 38% ground ball rate. Fast forward to July... And uh, in the limited at-bats, I grant you so far, 73 at-bats, but not that many fewer than in the first part of the year. His contact rate is up 10 points. He's at 82%, which is, again, sad to say, getting towards the elite nowadays. His hard contact has not recovered, but his ground ball fly ball mix has completely reversed. 29% fly balls, 53% ground balls. This guy can run, and I wonder somebody in the organization or maybe his dad or somebody said, you know what? You just need to put the bat on the ball and run like hell, and it, it'll work for you. And sure enough, it is working for him. His batting average is up, uh, you noted, up close to 300 for the period at 288. His expected batting average is full value for it. Jake Marisnik might be the real deal, but not as a power hitter. Yeah, it's possible you could be right. The thing I remember about Marisnik, though, is that we were talking about him um, not this year, but last year when he, he just opened the season with a bang. He was terrific in April, and I think he was making 80% contact then, and then he fell apart again. So he's young enough to improve, I agree, and he certainly has the speed if he can keep hitting the ball on the ground and making 80% uh, plus contact to make it work for him. Um, I just don't, I'm just not sure it's going to happen. It, I think it could be something worth betting on. If the guy has realized he's never been a hard contact guy, he's never had a hard contact index over 100, maybe somehow the penny dropped or the light went on and he thought, if I want to have a few more $7 million years you know, as a major league ball player, I got to stop swinging for the fences because I can't reach them. And if that's the case, then uh, that's pretty pretty rewarding. Now, the wild card in all of this could be uh, Bregman because they're talking about bringing up uh, Guriel, the Cuban signee, sooner rather than later. He's a third baseman. Bregman's a third baseman. There's got to be some give there. And I remember you and I talking about this a few weeks ago. They were looking at playing Bregman in the outfield. They were even uh, auditioning him in the minor leagues in the outfield. Yeah, it's a real good point, both on Marisnik and, and uh, Bregman, uh, um, like you said, Marisnik has the speed, and he's going to get some playing time. There's opportunity in Houston. They're looking at winning. He can play defense. He has the wheels. And Bregman is an athletic guy. He's not. He hasn't played any outfield, I don't think, yet in Houston. He, I think he had a game or two there in the, in the minors when they were trying to figure out how they'd fit uh, both him and Guriel into the lineup. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, it's very possible that Bregman could fit into left field when Guriel comes up because they certainly need outfielders right now. And you mentioned that Colby Rasmus is on the DL. I can't see him fitting in really a lot. His contact rate, always terrible, still around 67%. He is drawing a few walks this year, which is welcome, but overall, fair amount of power, but nothing else. No, I agree. And, and, and his 3 for 66 probably left something of a lasting impression. When he goes into a slump, he, he buries himself. And uh, that's where he was when they put him on the DL. So he's going to have to earn it back. He's going to have to earn playing time when he comes back. He's going to have to hit from the get-go. And briefly, what about Preston Tucker? Uh, Preston Tucker, another left-handed hitter. He was actually hot when they brought him up uh, uh, two, three weeks ago. Hasn't been able to carry over his, his recent minor league performance. Um, a a left-handed hitter, so he should be getting playing time, but he hasn't done anything with it.
Moving along, we can talk about the Minnesota Twins. They traded Eduardo Nunez to San Francisco just before the break, uh, and rookie Jorge Polanco coming somewhat out of nowhere to start four of the last five at the shortstop position. What about uh, Jorge Polanco and his skills? Do you think he has a chance to stick? And if so, does he have a chance to hit and be a valuable fantasy asset? Well, he's always been an interesting guy to me because um, scouts and analysts have always liked him. Um, they, they, if you look at the top 100 and uh, uh, lists like I do, uh, both preseason and midseason, he's a guy who always sneaks into the back end of these lists. Um, but a lot of scouts and analysts have never thought he could, he could, his glove would play at uh, at shortstop. That he was more of a second baseman and uh, or or a utility guy. Um, and and to me, the way they've handled Polanco is pretty endemic of the problems in the in the Twins front office. This is a guy they actually brought up for his first major league at bat at in at twenty four in twenty fourteen. I think he was twenty or twenty one years old. He impressed everybody in the few games he had, but they sent him down. Then they did the same thing to him in in uh, in twenty fifteen. He only got ten at bats. Um, they buried him. Um, he's behind uh, Brian Dozier, obviously at second base. Um, and he's not a world beater, but this is the kind of guy who can do a lot of things with the bat. He's got good patience. He's got good contact. He can sting the ball a little bit. Doesn't have great power, but there's some people that think he can grow into that. Um, right now, I think finally, um, with, with a new front office coming in, they're, they're finally doing what they should have done at the, during the preseason instead of acquiring all these DH types. They should have been figuring out ways to get him into the lineup, whether it would be at third base uh, as a utility player. Um, I think now they want to at least see him at shortstop. I don't know if he can stick there or not. I don't know that much about his, his defense or his defensive metrics. But if you're a fantasy owner, he now qualifies there. And uh, and if he's available in your league, I, he's hitting well right now. I mean, he's hitting 333 and 75 at bats, 91% contact. Um, I, I would certainly take a flyer on him. In fact, I do own him in one of my leagues. Yeah, he's an interesting story. And you did mention the Twins seem to have some kind of mania or passion or something like that for compiling as many sort of DH, no field, uh, high strikeout hitters as they could possibly manage. And they finally started uh, offloading those guys. Uh, I'm thinking of Arcia and Kendris Morales has now been recalled. Is this the beginning of a much needed wholesale change in how Minnesota runs their operation? Well, you would hope so because they have a lot of talent, They've, or at least a lot of offensive talent. They're still working on the pitching end, but they, they just don't seem to have any clue on how to utilize it. Uh, another name you mentioned, an acquisition that I could not figure out last year, who's still stuck in the minors even though he was up earlier, is Byung-Ho Park. And the reason he got sent down is because he was hitting below 200, even though he was hitting for power. They had so many of those guys, and the guys they need are the guys like Polanco, who's now playing shortstop for them. I wonder how much Jorge Polanco's uh, likelihood of sticking at shortstop depends on the development of Nick Gordon, a former top draft pick of the Twins, a shortstop uh, from a baseball family. D. Gordon is his brother. Tom Gordon is his dad. Uh, do you know anything about how Nick Gordon's uh, development has occurred? Yeah, Nick Gordon's still probably at, at least a year away from uh, from his major league debut, maybe two years. Um Again, I, I, I think whether Polanco sticks at shortstop, at least over the short term, is going to depend on his defense. Uh, he's, he's probably, if I had to guess without seeing it, he's probably more likely going to be a, a, a near everyday utility guy or, or maybe a, a, a third baseman if they feel that's, if they can, if they can move Sano to DH full time. Um, maybe even a second baseman if they decide to move Brian Dozier in the offseason. Uh, I think he has to play somewhere, though. Um, he's still only 23 years old and uh, he's got a bright future. 
Nick Gordon, if you're keeping score at home, is batting right around 300 in high A, Fort Myers in the twin system. So that's, you're right, it's at least a couple of years away, it sounds like. Uh, moving on to another shortstop, uh, Matt Duffy came to the Tampa Bay Rays in a trade for Matt Moore. There were some other pieces involved. He's a third baseman uh, nominally, but they're going to give him a shot at shortstop. He's coming off the DL. He had an Achilles problem. Brad Miller has already been moved to first base in Tampa. There's going to be a lot of moving parts here for the Rays. Chris Olson and Matt Dodge covered this in Playing Time Tomorrow, Playing Time Today is coming up. Duffy's new to the league, coming over from the Giants. What can American League owners expect from Matt Duffy, and uh, how is he going to handle the shortstop position? Well, I, you know, I think it's interesting. They're, they're clearly looking for a place that, uh, that to, to fit Duffy. Uh, they're not going to put him at third base where he played for San Francisco. Obviously, they've got Longoria there. And uh, uh, at second base, they got uh, uh, the names escaping me right now. Um, uh, Logan Morrison, that's right, who's been very good since he came over there. So they're going to try him at short, where he played in uh, in uh, in the minors. Um, Duffy's an interesting guy. I owned him during his breakthrough season last year, and he actually helped me win a fantasy championship, mainly because he was able to qualify at second base early in 25 leagues. But he eventually settled in as a regular third baseman for San Francisco in 2015, and he was pretty decent, particularly batting average-wise. He hit 295. Um, he hit 12 homers and stole 12 bases. The problem is, I think some of those numbers are a little inflated, and we're seeing that in the first part of this season. He's only hitting 250 now. Um, his, his expected batting average is the same. His hit rate has changed a little bit. It's not a 34% hit rate. Um, he's got good speed. He doesn't have a lot of pop. I really wonder whether that 12 home runs may not, isn't a career high. Um, he's always going to be dependent a little bit on his hit rate for batting average. Uh, uh, his contact rate's good. It's, it's uh, mid-80s. Um, I think he'll keep his batting average for the most part around or above par. He's never going to kill you there. The question is, is what he can provide otherwise other than that. And uh, it sounds like those kind of numbers are not particularly outstanding given how many terrific shortstops there are across baseball. Yeah, that's a real good point. In in some years, during some eras, uh, this would be a, a shortstop everyone would run out to acquire. But uh, we're in kind of a golden age right now. So the numbers, if you're talking about a guy who's going to hit, uh, if we take his expected batting average, 270 and maybe you know steal 12 bases and maybe hit eight homers, those aren't great numbers. I mean, they're decent. Uh, they're good in most leagues, but it, it's nobody that you would you would really stretch to acquire. A moment ago, you referred to Logan Morrison at second base for the Rays. I think you're talking about Logan Forsythe, but uh, Logan Morrison is a putative first baseman for the Rays. He's on the DL now, and when he comes back, he's going to have uh, Bradley Miller blocking his path, essentially. What, what is the likely playing time outcome for the Rays insofar as playing Miller at first base, and how much can he deliver as, a, as an offensive player at what is supposed to be an offensive position? Miller's had a really good year. If you haven't, if for those who haven't paid attention to him, uh, he's hit uh, what I think he's hit 20 home runs already. He's uh, he's slugging over 500. He's had the kind of year a first baseman uh, might have. It's it's tough to say whether he's capable of repeating it, but he always did have that power. He's never been a particularly good defensive shortstop. They've all they've talked about moving him to center field. And, uh, and Logan Morrison's just been typically awful. I, I don't think he's going to get his at-bats back coming back. Uh, Richie Schaefer hasn't done much. Uh, he's back in the minors. Casey Gillespie, now in AAA, has some potential, but he's likely not ready for a, a, a major league debut. Um, it, it could be. This is Miller's uh, future home. And uh, But even longer term um, now, I mean, he, he still has shortstop eligibility entering 
2017. So if you're in a keeper league, you can still playing there. And, and gosh, what a bat. He's been terrific this year. Yeah, I have Morrison as kind of a bench ender on my Tout Wars American League team. And what is it with the Rays? They got guys like that, James Loney, uh, you know, empty average type guys. They've had a lot of trouble filling that first base slot. Yeah, they have, and and Miller's <laughs> Miller right now is the first power hitter they've had who's really produced there in a long time. So uh, it'll be interesting to see if they keep him there. Moving on to Detroit, uh, Nick Castellanos having a fine year, uh, got placed on the 15-day disabled list. He's got a hand problem, broke a bone. I think he was hit by a pitch, actually. What's his prognosis for his return, and who's going to get the playing time in a pretty good Detroit lineup? Well, the first report said he's out about a month, so uh, we're, we're broadcasting this, I think, about five, six days after he went on the DL, so he's got at least another three weeks to go, maybe more. Um, the Tigers called up uh, journeyman Casey McGeehee, who's, who's had some major league experience, and he's actually had some pretty good years in the past. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but he hit 23 home runs back in 2010. He batted 280, uh, and uh, he hit uh, 287 again in 2014, although without any power. And I think that's his biggest problem right now. There's just no power left. I mean, he had only hit, uh, I'm looking at it here, uh, I think he'd only he'd only hit five home runs and 410 at-bats uh, in AAA this year, although he'd hit 322. He still has the capability of hitting for some bats, for some average. Uh, his contact rate is uh, is still uh, uh, pretty decent. Um, he, he you know if he, if he runs into some hits, he could help you out. But uh, he's definitely at, at age 33 and with his power dwindling, uh, he's definitely just a fill-in right now. Mike Aviles is on the roster. Made a real nice catch the other day playing shortstop. Uh, he looks done to me, but what do you think? Yeah, I would agree. Um, Aviles really hasn't uh, done a lot uh, at the plate this year. I'm looking at his skills right now. Um, 202 average, uh, uh, 506 on base percentage. Uh, on, he's not walking at all. He's not not hitting for any power. Um, I just, yeah, I, I, I would avoid Mike Aviles. Staying with the injury theme, it seems like we do more and more of this every show. Sonny Gray, a fine pitcher in Oakland right-hander, has a forearm strain, which is always bad news because it often presages elbow problems. He's going to miss uh, at least the minimum 15 days, probably more. The, the Oakland rotation was not in good shape even with Sonny Gray in it. Uh, boy, oh boy, it looks terrible now, really bad for them. Is there any hope here at all? Maybe some of the guys that came over from the Dodgers in the Hill-Reddick trade? Yeah, you know, um, immediately, uh, probably not. I mean, if, if you think about what's going on now, it's we're in mid-August, and a lot of these teams who are in the middle of and, and maybe even beginning their rebuilding plans. Uh, Oakland's probably looking at two, three years before they get competitive. There's really no incentive for them to bring up and start the time clock on on some of these pitchers that they have. Uh, Gray has is, is really been interesting. I'm looking at his numbers right now. You, you talk about this. This may have been a mercy killing for Gray's owners, uh, just a comment on his season there. Um, his velocity is in line with what it was last year. It's barely down at all, but... Uh, Control is way off, giving up way more home runs than, than he had. His fly ball rate has been very unfortunate. Uh, he's still throwing ground balls at a good good clip. I wouldn't be surprised with a with a uh, a muscle strain in his forearm if he doesn't come back. Uh, the problem with Oakland's rotation right now is uh, if you look at the names there. I mean, you've got uh, Kendall Grabman, who is uh, who's a rookie, and I, I think he's got uh, some upside down the road, but uh, he's not showing it right now. Uh, they're filling in with Zach Neal and Ross Detweiler. Um, 
Sean Manea has obviously uh, some some terrific upside. Even Sean's a little bit up and down right now, and they uh, I wouldn't be surprised if the A's shut him down a little bit in September too, because he'll be nearing a, a, an in, an innings limit. Um, the guys they got from the Dodgers, uh, uh, Gerald Cotton, I think, might be the best name to chase here if if you're looking for somebody. But uh, again, without uh, without any um, experience on a on a pretty questionable Oakland team. Uh, I'm not sure they're even going to call him up. In Los Angeles, your bailiwick, we talked many times about Cam Bedrosian and his potential as a future closer. I actually drafted him in tout this year, actually got him off the free agent wire early, and uh, he got one save and went on the DL. And uh, I don't know how long he's going to be on. There's some kind of hand or finger problem, a tendon in his middle finger on his pitching hand, which sounds like not much, but I bet it's actually pretty serious. Um this was not a good bullpen anyway, so what happens with the scant handful of saves available for the Angels while Bedrosian gets better? And, and do you know how long he's supposed to be out? The good news on this injury is that it's a, a, a it's, I think it's some sort of finger tendonitis or, or some sort of a strain in his hand. The, the good news is that it's not his arm, it's not his shoulder, his elbow, which obviously can be deadly longer term. The problem is, though, as you've suggested, these sorts of things can last for a long time. I mean, you take a look at James Paxton. This is the thing that bothered him, you know, pretty much, I think, all of last year. So I would not be, be surprised to see Bedrosian out for, for a while uh, on this one. And you're right, uh, the L.A. bullpen couldn't exactly take this hit. Um, you're probably looking now at Fernando Salas, who we've talked about in the past, a high ERA, lots of fly balls and home runs. So um, nothing guaranteed there, either in terms of performance or how consistently he'll he'll um, take over the ninth inning until Houston Street comes back. If you want to take a flyer on somebody, Diolis Guerra has been uh, probably the Angels' surprisingly best pitcher, uh, reliever, other than uh, Bedrosian. Um, doesn't walk very many people. Doesn't strike out a whole lot of guys either. But he but he keeps the ball in the park. His ERA is uh, has been sub three all year. There's a guy who might get some opportunities, but on a bad team, I mean, why would you chase saves there? I guess. And finally, Jock. Earlier this year, of course, we suffered a great loss in the music community with uh, the untimely passing of Prince. Now we have another Prince and an untimely retirement. Prince Fielder of the Rangers has announced he just can't do it anymore. He's going to uh, leave the Rangers, and that leaves uh, some openings at first base. Uh, how does this work out for the Rangers in the uh, short term as far as playing time concerns? Uh, Mitch Moreland's playing great. Yeah, um, DH, I mean, it's actually not – I mean, it's terrible news for, for Prince Fielder, obviously. Um uh, short term for the Rangers, it, it doesn't hurt them that much, given that, that Fielder hadn't played that well all year. Obviously, um, they can uh, put uh, Jurix and Profar uh, on the field more often. They can round robin people in and out of that uh, uh, DH spot, particularly, as you noted, with Shinshu Chu back. Um, I, I think this actually helps the Rangers a little bit move people around. Um, longer term, it's kind of interesting, too, because you've got Moreland as a free agent to be. It really opens up that first base DH spot, uh, and it, it, it gives a, a brighter outlook for Joey Gallo, who's managed to survive the trade deadline and remain with the Rangers. I'll make a daring prediction. I don't think Joey Gallo ever plays for Texas. Uh, uh, I, I think that they are moving away from these high strikeout guys. I know his power is prodigious, but I think more and more front offices are realizing you just can't bear the strikeouts that much. I, I mean, a guy who puts the ball in play and makes an out, at least he pushes a runner around or something. The strikeouts just kill you, but I could be wrong about that. I would be more uh, likely to believe that Joey Gallo ends up a trade chip somewhere that somebody looks 
at those 45 home run potential and says, you know, I'll try it. What the heck? Uh, Jock, thanks a million for helping us out. Do appreciate it. And we'll talk to you again with more American League news and player analysis next week. Okay, PD, we'll see you then. Jock Thompson is BaseballHQ.com's Director of News and Analysis and a speculator columnist at the site. And he covers player news from the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. We'll have a quick break here, then we'll be back with Ron Chandler next on Baseball HQ Radio. Hi, I'm Ray Murphy, Co-General Manager at BaseballHQ.com. I'm inviting you to join me at First Pitch Arizona, November 3rd through 6th in Scottsdale. It's three days jam-packed with seminars, scouting reports, workshops, and fantasy drafts. And best of all, First Pitch Arizona is three great days just talking baseball with hundreds of serious fantasy players like you and all of the top industry experts. And don't forget the ball games. First Pitch Arizona is your chance to scout 2017's impact rookies from your own front row seat. To get the details and to register, Visit BaseballHQ.com and click on the giant First Pitch Arizona logo on the right side of the homepage. First Pitch Arizona. Come see for yourself why the fantasy baseball winners who attend every year call it the most fun you can have outside of draft day. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for our feature expert interview, and it's my pleasure to be joined once again by the master, Ron Chandler, from ronchandler.com and ESPN. Ron, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. It's great to have you. Well, thanks. It's always good to be back here. Before we get into Babs and uh, ronchandler.com and all the interesting tools you have going on over there, how are your teams doing in your various experts leagues? Uh, pretty well, pretty well actually. Uh, you know, usually I have a few teams contending and a, and a few near the bottom, but uh, uh, this year I don't have any team lower than fifth place right now, and uh, a few of them are on the on the, on the cusp of a potential title. Uh, you know, in the, in the national competitions, I'm in. Uh, let's see, I'm in second place in the XFL Keeper League. Uh, I have a chance to uh, unseat Steve Moyer, who's the defending champ, and is in first place again this year. So uh, that looks good. Um, running between third and fourth in the uh, the Sirius XM FSTA league that we drafted back in January, uh, I'm pretty happy with that uh, position right now. Even if that's where I end up, because my uh, my second, third, and fourth picks in that draft were D. Gordon, Charlie Blackman, and Matt Harvey. Uh, so, uh, needless to say, I was counting on Gordon and Blackman to anchor me in stolen bases, and I'm really floundering in that category. So, to be in third, fourth place right now. Uh, is uh, pretty uh, good for me. Um, and Tout Wars, uh, just a few spots behind you, Patrick. Fifth place, uh, still hoping for a late surge. Um, I've had uh, uncharacteristic pitching struggles this year when I look up and down my roster. Um, and I always think about, you know, is there are there one or two things that happened at the draft that might have turned things around? And actually, there was one. I remember this now. <clears throat> I look back, and we were bidding against each other for Jay Happ. Yes, we were. And and I don't know much for how much further you would have gone for him, but uh, I think you got him for like four bucks, and that was a huge bargain. I sure could have used him on my team this year. 
I think I would have gone a few dollars more. The regret I have is that I got out on Marco Estrada from the Jays, and I actually had Aaron Sanchez down as somebody that I was interested in, but managed not to get included in that. Uh, all three would have been uh, terrific ads. Now, in uh, Tout Wars American League uh, auction that we both play in, uh, I'm in third, you're in fifth. It's a very tight race, and something I like to do whenever I'm in a race like this is I like to go through the categories, and I like to say, okay, how high could I go, how low could I drop in each of these categories? Categories. And normally, I've always found that uh, the, the the range is pretty small in, in each individual category. You can gain one or two here, lose one or two there. But in uh, this year in Tout Wars, the categories, are uh, a lot of them are very tightly bunched. And it's not out of the realm of possibility that you could gain or lose four or five points. Not just me or not just you, but within the various categories, everybody's got a lot of room to move, and the overall race is actually pretty tight as well. There's still a lot of volatility in this league. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's look, it's the middle of August, and uh, from first to fifth place where I'm in is, I mean, it's 17 points that separates first to, to fifth. But, uh, you know, like you said, the individual categories, I know I could pick up like two or three points in wins. I could pick up, uh, gosh, uh, I, there's like three or four points in stolen bases I could pick up. Uh, on base average is very tight. Uh, if, you know, if I get the one or if I can pick up a decent starter down the stretch, there's like three or four points in wins. Uh, you know, there's up and down the uh, every single category there are a lot of points still in play. So, uh, yeah, like you said, uh, it's anybody's uh, league to take right now. One of the downsides of the extreme competitiveness overall and within the categories, Ron, is that I'm, I'm finding it very difficult to make trades. I, I Earlier this year, I had uh, a strategy to draft a whole bunch of uh, or acquire a whole bunch of guys who were second in line for saves, and one after another, they started occurring. And then I, I got Kelvin Herrera of uh, Kansas City, and I offered him around the league, and the response I got was almost always the same. I'd love to have him. There's three or four points in saves there for me. But whatever I give you, if it has any value at all, is going to cost me the same three or four points in other categories. So there's no point in doing it. And and uh, that seems to be the downside of the tightness of the overall situation. Yeah, and I think it's indicative to to deep leagues these these days as well because uh, there's there's not a whole lot of talent to go around. Our, our reserve lists are very very shallow. There's nothing in the free agent pool pretty much to to help you know supplement it. Even if you uh, traded away something and ended up on on a slightly lesser end of that deal, there's nothing in the free agent pool for you to bring up to uh, to to help support that. So uh, this year, I th I think more than most other years, I'm seeing in 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 tout al. The owner is very, very reluctant to make deals, and uh, I think it's, it's just indicative of how tight these categories are. Is that likely to change in the future, Ron? I mean, we, we still play with 14 hitters. We play with as many as 15 hitters because we have that swing position. We're soaking up. Uh, I figured it out one day. I think it's 85 or 86% of all the hitters are spoken for as of the end of the draft. And, and as you say, that really constrains your ability to trade an offensive player because there's just nothing that you can put in there to replace him unless you had the foresight to uh, draft and reserve a, uh, a guy who turns out to be good enough to, to, to help you out. But that's not usually the case or for, for most of the teams. Are, is this going to be the new way of uh, fantasy baseball in deep only leagues? Leagues, or are we going to have to change and reduce the number of hitters and increase the number of pitchers to better reflect what's going on in the big leagues? 
Well, I mean, we've talked about these possible rule t- tweaks for a long time now, and uh, one of the things that Tout Wars does that I kind of like is that uh, although the, the major league free agent pool is very shallow, you can speculate on minor leaguers here. So if you see a minor leaguer who's having a, you know, a hot couple of months and you think might get a call, uh, you can you know tie up one of your reserve slots and speculate on them, which is actually something I did back in, I guess, May or June with Mike Zunino. I saw he was having a huge uh, season in AAA, and I thought maybe the Mariners might bring him up, so I, I spent a few dollars of fab just to speculate because my catchers at the time were terrible. And uh, as it turned out, he's come up and he's performing pretty well, and, and that's really probably the best way these days to to uh, try to build your team up uh, beyond the, the major league roster. And I'm hoping that becomes more of a, of a standard way within these leagues because uh, right now the way things are going in a deep league, it's very tough to make a move if you're, if you're behind. It was relatively early in the season. I think Jeff Erickson, who was uh, trailing the field pretty badly, uh, decided to do that with uh, two or three different guys. Most notably, I think he got Alex Bregman for a buck maybe a month or so before Bregman got called up, and that was a speculative play that obviously paid some dividends for Jeff. The flip side to to that is, is there any concern, uh, as far as the rules are concerned, is there any concern that uh, by allowing uh, owners to grab these young prospects before they're called up, we're missing the opportunity to have them be properly valued by the league in the uh, in any kind of uh, fab situation once they are called up. A lot of leagues have rules that you can't draft a guy until he's actually on a major league roster. Sure, but I mean, we really, I mean, if you really look at it, the only way to accurately evaluate whether a player is is a, a worthwhile major league prospect is to actually see him perform in the major leagues for for a little bit and. Uh, you know, we're always speculating, even when a player is called up, whether or not he's going to succeed or not. So it's it's the choice of, of speculating before he's called versus speculating the week after he's called. But it's still a speculation, so I don't really see that being an issue. Moving along, uh, as we speak, we're... Uh we're going to be uh, looking at Alex Rodriguez's last game, uh, possibly in the majors forever, but certainly for the New York Yankees. They announced that August 12th would be his final game. And in a recent uh, post that you uh, repeated at ronchandler.com, a Twitter post, you said, uh, A-Rod was a fantasy baseball god, and I'm putting that in quotation marks, no matter the baggage and controversies that have surrounded him, especially the last few years. What were you getting at when you made that statement? Uh, well, at my website, uh, ronchandler.com, I created what I call the, uh, the Rotisserie Baseball Hall of Fame. And what I do here is, is play, I evaluate players strictly on their contributions to our rotisserie teams. So as fantasy leaguers, we, we, we don't care about steroid use or bad behavior or what have you. We, we only care about the stats, and we only care about rostering players who can help us win. So during um, the period of uh, about 1980 to the present, I, I call that the rotisserie era, A-Rod uh, has amassed a total of $623 in career earnings. And there are only two players who have earned more during that time, and they were Barry Bonds and Ricky Henderson. So in those terms, he's clearly an elite company, and that's beyond anything else that he's done on or off the field. But uh, as far as helping our teams, he's right up there with the best. And our mutual friend Joe Sheehan in his baseball newsletter wrote the other day that he's just one of the best 15 players ever, uh, not notwithstanding the baggage and controversies. And I know some people say, yeah, but he was using these uh, substances to gain an advantage, but hey, he was pretty good either way, I, I think is the point. Now, now the next question is, 
is Mike Trout another A-Rod? Is Bryce Harper another A-Rod? Is there going to be another A-Rod in our uh, decreasingly available lifetimes? <laughs> uh, I'm sure we'll we'll, we'll see uh, other players like that. I mean, Mike Trout clearly could be on that same path. Um, one of the nice things about evaluating players using rotisserie dollars um, is that each year those dollars are benched to the level of play in that year. So, so like a 30 home run season in 2014 when pitching was more dominant is worth more than a 30 home run season this year, for instance. So, so even if we never see a 50 or a 60 home run hitter again, you know, players like Trout for sure, uh, you know, maybe Harper if, if he rebounds, they'll still be generating huge uh, rotisserie dollar earnings. Uh, Albert Pujols, uh, Miguel Cabrera, I mean, they're these are guys who are currently rising up the earnings leaderboard on, on, on the Roto Hall of Fame, and there'll be others right behind them, so uh, we'll still see these guys. Your late July update of the Babs report at ronchandler.com puts Josh Donaldson of the Blue Jays on top for the second straight month. Before we start talking about the ins and outs of Babs, maybe for listeners not familiar with the idea, just briefly explain what Babs is and how it works. Uh, okay, briefly. I'm not sure I can do this briefly, but let's give it a shot. Give it a shot. All right. The, um, the underlying concept of, of the broad assessment balance sheet, which is uh, what Babs is, uh, it, it pretty much runs in opposition to a lot of the work I've done in the past. You know, since Bill James' abstracts in the, in the 1980s and the rise of fantasy, you know, we've been developing more and more complex systems to project player performance. And we've done great. We've done great. We've made great gains in, in explaining performance, you know, looking at like leading indicators, regression, uh, things like BABIP, StatCast, heat charts, you know, stuff like that. So we, we're doing really well in explaining performance. But when it comes to projecting performance, I, I think we're still spinning our wheels every year. We, we're still running up against that ceiling of what they say 70% accuracy, uh, which is terrible for all intents and purposes. And our leagues every year, if you look back, they're still being won by the teams that have more overachievers than underachievers. So, and then we go back every spring and we do it all over again, the same process. And you know what I say, the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. I think that's where we are. So during the last, my last few years at BaseballHQ.com, I started pulling away from the idea that we really can forecast any better than we have been in the past and started toying with the, the notion that maybe we should try to embrace the imprecision in the process. So that's, that's how like the, the Mayberry method came to be, and, and Babs is, is a natural extension to that. Um, basically, Babs says we, we need to do two things. First, we need to assess skill in very broad terms, because otherwise uh, we get caught up in, in the wide error bars of what's normal statistical volatility. You know, a guy could... A guy could hit 10 homers one year, 13 the next, and 16 the year after that, and everyone will see that as growth when the reality could be that because of normal volatility, uh, that just might actually be the same player every year. We just don't know. So in Babs, each element of player skill, you know, power, speed, pitching dominance, yada, yada, is, each element is, is evaluated in broad terms, uh, below average, moderate, extreme, uh, moderate, significant, or extreme. And the underlying metrics used to separate these categories are still based on sabermetrics, but we're not projecting how many home runs a player hit, just, just describing his demonstrated skill in those very, very broad terms. So that's the first part of BABS. And the second, and, and probably for me more important element, is that 
we separate the skill from the risk factors. So players, players are sort of evaluated as a balance sheet of assets and liabilities. The reason we do this is, is um, it's that our statistic projections now are trying to capture too many variables. Now, players' preseason projection is uh, is both an objective calculation of his skill combined with subjective adjustments for you know what impact his health is going to be, how much experience he has, regression, uh, team environment, and and the biggest black hole you know playing time. We just we just don't know about playing time. So. So let me give you an example of, of how this has kind of played out. You know, this past March, Bab said, and as, as counterintuitive as it sounded at the time, that Buster Posey and Jonathan Lucroy had essentially equivalent underlying skill. Moderate power, significant batting tool. Um, the only difference between the two is that Lucroy had an elevated injury risk, which is something that other forecasters have to incorporate into their projections. Well, Babs doesn't do that. So that meant if you were willing to assume that added risk, um, you didn't have to pay for Posey. You could wait for Lucroy and get essentially the same player. And so far, that's worked out really well. And it made similar comparisons with others like um, you know Evan Longoria and Nick Castellanos. Uh, Castellanos was drafted like 10 rounds later. Uh, Kyle Seeger and Jake Lamb, also essentially the same guy. And that's how you build profit into your roster. And that's not so brief, a long-winded explanation of what Babs is all about. You're balancing how much uh, skill the guy has and trying to make money off the by uh, figuring out how much risk you're embracing and paying less because of the risk. This is like playing the bond market, really, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And uh, the way the, uh, the the overall concept is structured is that you, uh, Bab sets budgets for how much, how many skill elements you need to accumulate in order to uh, construct a, a minimally contending team, and a budget for uh, how much risk you can take on. So uh, if I had decided that for my catcher I was going to go after Lucroy and take on that injury risk, that would be a notch against that went against my, my risk budget for my roster, and I knew how much other risk I still would be able to take on at some point later in the draft. And by limiting the amount of risk and knowing exactly how many risk risky players I'm, I'm, I'm rostering, I have a better sense of the strength of my roster coming out of the draft. You've used Babs a few times now in your own drafting. How has it performed? Very well. I'm, I'm very pleased. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons why my teams are doing so well this year, uh, because I was, during the draft, be able to see, uh, as the draft was going on, exactly how much risk I was taking on, how much uh, how many, how much skill, how many assets I was I was building up during the course of the draft, and knew what I needed to do as the draft was going on, so I could see. Well, I've got a lot of power assets here. I'm I'm low on speed. I need to go after speed without kind of being inundated by the actual numbers and and worrying about have I have I met my target for stolen bases? Have I met my target for for strikeouts? You know, these are targets in a very broad sense, but I'm not worrying about reaching a number, a specific number. I'm just trying to reach a number of players who contribute to each category. Ron, I mentioned that Josh Donaldson was on top of the Babs list for July. It was the second straight month. What is it about Donaldson that makes him such a reliable Babs star? Um, well, you know, he's he's producing just as well as Babs projected during the preseason. Uh, we projected the extreme power, significant batting, uh, significant batting tool, and on-base ability. Um, but he's also being recognized from some speed skill this year, which is a little odd. His uh, his hard hit 
uh, ball rate is at a career high. He's on pace now to double the number of triples he's ever hit in the season. Uh, he's on path for a career year and runs scored. He hasn't been caught stealing like in three years now. So his current Babs rating is identical to Mike Trout's right now, which gives you an idea of, of, of how he's being looked at. And you know how consistent Trout has been. So Donaldson is, is pretty much a, a rotisserie stud. Another couple of names jumped out at me from the top reaches of the July update. Uh, the first one's are really quite a surprise, Tyler Naquin of Cleveland. Coming into the season, Naquin was rated as, as moderate power, moderate speed, moderate batting tool. That was based, uh, of course, only on his minor league numbers. And, of course, because of who he is, on the liability side of the ledger was this big red warning for experience risk. And you have to take that into account. So anyone who rostered him was taking a chance, but the underlying skills potential measured up well with other more established players. Uh, once he hit the majors, uh, he's, he's performed to our expectation and exceeded it in some cases. But here's the thing. We're, we're still talking about someone performing with an, a small sample size of Major League data. Uh, his BABIP is, is currently off the charts now, so there are still uh, many possibilities for, for regression here, and uh, we just don't know what direction his number is going to take from this point. But so far, uh, he's pretty much living up uh, to what we expected he could do, uh, stripping away uh, the risk that he's exceeded, because uh, uh, the experience hasn't really come into play for him. How long does it take before the experience risk marker is changed? He only has... What, not even 100 games probably? Uh, I haven't looked lately, but uh, how many games played or how many plate appearances does he have to amass before uh, the tool says, all right, I'm going to give this guy a little more credit for his experience and reduce that risk marker? It's almost two seasons, actually. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, research has done is that for some, every uh, statistical gauge has a certain number of plate appearances or innings before they're considered more stable. And for things like batting average, it takes something like 900 at-bats before you can consider a batting average stable. Uh, so for batters, for the most part, I look at two seasons. And uh, at the end of two seasons, about you know 1,000 uh, at-bats or thereabouts, uh, then the experience risk will pretty much go away. Because you, you, you figure that during a player's rookie year, you really don't know what he's going to do. Uh, during the sophomore years is, is when we see whether he can uh, react to any adjustments that the opposition have uh, implemented to try to you know, offset what he's done during his rookie year. And so it's in year three, really, where we get a better sense of who this player is. So uh, that experience risk stays on his record for two full years. Another player at the top of the list, maybe not quite so much as a surprise, except that he's playing in what, what amounts to limbo in Major League Baseball, Atlanta first baseman Freddie Freeman near the top of the charts. Yeah, that, that Freeman's a little bit of a surprise for me. I mean, he was he was evaluated in the preseason with uh, significant power, significant, significant batting tool and on-base ability. Um, but his Babs rating right now this season is showing extreme power, which uh, obviously doesn't jibe with the 19 home runs he's hit so far. So I, this seems like an anomaly. All his indicators do point him to being able to hit more home runs. We, he just hasn't done it. So we could take this to mean that there was a power surge yet to come or that he's just an outlier. And, I mean, they're, they're always going to be outliers. And the other name I noticed, uh, Jonathan Lucroy, we talked about a moment ago, uh, now with Texas, uh, which raises two questions. Why is he up there so high, and does the team change or does the location change factor into any of these ratings? Um, the team change, I'll, I'll take your second question first, the team change is is uh, listed in Babs as um, 
a, a separate element of either an asset or a liability. So if, if a player is moving to a more offensive, uh, uh, better environment, that'll be listed as an asset separately. And, and then you ha just have to uh, look at that more as a subjective level because we really don't know how much of an impact the change is going to make. We've seen situations where either players moving to or away from course field don't perform in the way that we expect them to, so we, we can't make an absolute, uh, draw an absolute conclusion that a player's performance is going to improve or decline based upon the uh, the team change alone. But as for LaCroix, I mean, he's taken this preseason rating, uh, he's shown some growth, uh, possibly uh, through being healthy this year, and this is an interesting um, question that I wrote about in one of my earlier articles. Um, when we evaluate players, are we subconsciously suppressing their true upside for those guys who have had injury issues earlier in their career? And I, I think of others like um, like Nelson Cruz or Edwin Encarnacion, uh, Manny Machado, uh, now maybe Will Myers. I mean, these are guys we never rated as elite uh, due to their early health concerns, but they exploded once they found a way to stay on the field. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, it's it's an interesting question, and um, it, it's something we probably should look at. It's something I'm going to look at this offseason uh, because all of those names you mentioned uh, really caught my eye in the preseason planning this year, and I felt like it was almost an, uh, uh, a bias against players who had these uh, injury uh, histories and in a lot of cases, especially some of the players you mentioned, like Machado and uh, and others, it's just a matter of growing into their body sometimes. When you're 21 years old playing Major League Baseball, you're not a mature adult. And as you move up to 25, 26, you fill out, get a little stronger, get a little more consistent, you know, all of these kind of things. All of a sudden, that injury risk just doesn't vanish, I suppose, entirely, but it certainly uh, gets ameliorated just by physical maturity. Right, and that's the nice thing about separating the skill from the the, the risk elements here with with Babs, because you know if we look at injury as a separate situation, as experience and 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 a player being able to grow into their body, that type of thing, separate from the underlying skills that we that they're demonstrating even early in their careers, I think that gives us a better perspective on what their potential could be. So it's an interesting approach, anyway. It certainly is. Uh, now, the bottom of the Babs list uh, that I looked at is thickly populated with catchers, including some who might be thought of or would have been thought of as decent guys for the slot. Chris Iannetta, Derek Norris, Russell Martin, uh, and Buster Posey, you mentioned also. He's way down in the 70s, I think. Why do catchers fare so relatively poorly in the Babs system? Well, Babs makes no concession for position scarcity, so that that's something we need to take into account ourselves. And the truth is, I mean, if you take a look at most catchers these days, they're a lot of them are not rosterable at all. If we just rank all players from best to worst, you know, really, who would ever put a guy like uh, you know James McCann or, or Chris Iannetta on their roster if they weren't catchers? I mean, we wouldn't even be really be looking at them. And and when you say Posey is ranked in the seventies. On these lists, you really can't look at Babs that way because these lists, the Babs list is only ranking skill, not playing time. So there are about a dozen players listed ahead of Posey who are not full-timers but have better skills profiles. And, and players are listed interchangeably within those skills groups. So Posey is, is in, among a group of 14 players. Uh, that includes guys like Robinson Cano, Hanley Ramirez, Adrian Beltre. For Babs' purposes, they are all essentially the same guy. So the better way to evaluate is to say that among the top batter skills groups, 
Posey is in the group ranked 17th, as it were. So those groups have anywhere from 1 to 16 players, but he's, he's in the 17th best group. Still seems surprisingly low. I bet that would surprise a lot of people, if you even if you put it that way. Over on the pitching side, Ron, the familiar names are up near the top, the names we'd expect, but I noticed Kansas City left-handed starter Danny Duffy was up there rubbing elbows with the elite in the top 10, even ahead of you, Darvish and Madison Bumgarner, which really caught me by surprise. What is Danny Duffy doing so right to earn such a meritorious slot? Yeah, I mean, you look at the underlying metrics. He's, he's actually in the same skills group as Darvish. Uh, separated only by playing time, and he and Bumgarner have gotten closer in in, in the the few weeks since that update was posted. But the difference between the two is is just really strikeout ability. And if you look at their strikeout rates, swinging strike rates, first pitch strike rates, all those metrics, they're very very similar. And then what about Brandon McCarthy? He was up in second place behind Kershaw and ahead of Max Scherzer. Uh, is Brandon McCarthy somebody we should be rushing to acquire if he's available? No, no. No, of course not. But see, all, all players are listed with their associated playing time. Full-timers, mid-timers, part-timers. <clears throat> and and the confidence in the ratings rises as players go up that scale. So, so Kershaw and Scherzer are both listed with full-time innings. Obviously, that has changed a bit with Kershaw. McCarthy is listed with essentially part-time innings, so his skills ratings have have to be seen with much less confidence. Uh, and the reason the reason they appear this way on the list is that so you can focus on the skills and possibly cherry pick players who might have some upside. You know, at Baseball HQ, I always said to focus on skills and not roles. Babs helps in that process. Um, of course, McCarthy, since that list was um, created at the end of July, McCarthy's had a couple of, you know, two, three bad starts. So things have changed for him. But uh, and, and that's why we look at the, the, the playing time indicator as, as sort of like a level of confidence in the, uh, the ratings themselves. The Babs tool is really interesting. I, I've long agreed with your position on the idea of embracing imprecision and managing it rather than trying to eliminate it with these uh, highly artificial uh, totals that we project, uh, 17 home runs, 27 home runs, when we really don't know it's just part of a range or the best guess within a range. I think it's a terrific tool, Ron, and uh, you're, to, you're to be congratulated for developing it. And I know you have uh, announced that you're going to be uh, making some improvements as far as the database for next season. Uh, uh, yeah, we uh, you know one of the th- this year was kind of in some ways a test year for Babs uh, trying to work through all the mechani- machinations of, of of getting it to to work right and and, and usable for for all our readers and whatnot. Uh, it we're going to be creating a database so during the off season so that uh, users will be able to uh, run reports and and do searches and and see historical levels for all the players and make it a lot more robust tool for the 2017 season. So I'm really looking forward to that. And that's at ronchandler.com. Uh, it's a terrific tool. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Ron Chandler, founder of BaseballHQ.com and now the owner-operator of RonChandler.com. And Ron, you also write for ESPN.com and you had a column recently arguing that this season is yet another data point in favor of not paying for saves at the draft. What did you mean? Well, yeah, I've been saying this for a long time. You know, I've been tracking the, the success of relievers uh, in their ability to keep the closers role. I've been tracking it now since the late 1990s. Uh, and the trends are remarkable. Uh, the, the annual failure rate for closers each year ranges anywhere between 22% and 66% annually. Uh, the average runs about 45%. So it means in any season, nearly half the closers you buy at the draft will lose their job before the season's over. Um, now, you know, good thing the marketplace, you know, all of us have responded to this by paying less and less for closers each year. 
15 years ago. Uh, the average closer price was about 20 bucks. Last year it was at an all-time low of about 14.79, I think it was. And this past March has actually dropped below 14 dollars. So, so we're learning, but that still means that instead of half of our 20 dollar investments going belly up, it's still half of our 14 dollar investments going belly up. But uh, you know, saves uh, are a necessary evil, and but it begs the question: What should we be targeting? Uh, I could say uh, buy the most expensive, stable, high-skilled guys, and, and that's an approach that a lot of the analysts uh, recommend. But then, I mean, you would, would have ended up with you know, Wade Davis or Ken Giles this year. Um, uh, but I, I could have said that you could speculate on, on low-cost closers with upside, and but then, it's, again, it's a crapshoot. You could have ended up with Kelvin Herrera. You could have ended up with Will Smith. I mean, you just don't know. So I don't really have an answer for this. Uh, I really don't. What I noticed in uh, in our tout auction this year was there was a premium being paid for the very top names, and for the most part, I think it paid off, although Wade Davis, classic example of exactly what you're saying. Uh, those guys who, who draft the premium closers often do get their saves and their decent decimals, so I guess the question we all have to figure out is how do we assess the risk of the closer in his league context, in his team context, in his injury and health context, in his past performance context. And even at that, I think it's it's a much more risky proposition than almost anything else that we try to accomplish when we're looking at players in a draft. No, I agree. I mean, it, it really is a crapshoot. And our situation in Tout Wars is a classic example. I uh, We talked a little bit about this offline, but I'm in first place right now in saves by a lot. I, my lead over second place now is about 15 saves. Now, common wisdom, the conventional wisdom, it would be for me to trade my excess. And um, I was approached by several of the touts a little earlier in the season to trade one of my closers. But you know, I looked at who I had, and I realized that most of that excess was created uh, by Kevin Jepsen, who was a third closer at the time for me, who was no longer a closer. So the excess was not as much as it looked. And my other two closers, who I paid very, very little for at the draft, Francisco Rodriguez and Steve Ciszek. So, at, so when I thought at one point I had... Th- two, three closers to build up this big lead, here I am sitting at the middle of August and I really only have one closer now. And even with a lead of 15 saves over second place, I mean, that could evaporate pretty quickly by the end of the season. Does that argue in favor of making deals for any closer you happen to have on your roster early in the season on the expectation that he has a pretty good chance of not holding on to the role and maybe anytime somebody offers you anything useful, you should just grab it and uh, take the uh, one in the hand versus the two in the bush? Uh, I mean, that's one way to look at it, I guess. Uh, the other way is that if you've got somebody who's actually putting up some saves, you just try to stockpile as much as you can until they're not doing it anymore. I mean, I thought C-Sheck was a safe bet. He was putting up good saves, and uh, you know, now he's lost a job. He's on the DL now. Uh, you just never know. I, you know. I look at a guy like Fernando Rodney. Uh, started the season as a closer, got traded, lost the job. Now he's got it back again. I mean, you can't predict these things. So uh, it's just a matter of trying to follow whoever's got the role at any given time, uh, ride it as long as you can, and just hope for the best. 
And of course, depending on the size of your uh, of your reserve list and how it shapes up, it can be useful. You mentioned earlier uh, rostering on your reserve the uh, young prospects who might come up a little later on in the season because you can get them so cheap. Uh, I think the same is true if you keep your eyes peeled on the uh, major league uh, situation. You can get a few of those type of guys as well. I got Cam Bedrosian this year, and uh, way way back when, just stashed him on reserve, streamed him in every so often because he's a pretty good decimals guy as well. And uh, sure enough, he got the job. Then sure enough, a day later, he went on the DL. But that that happens, you know. But uh, it's another uh, path to getting saves on the cheap. Yeah, I mean, there are so many paths to to uh, getting saves. I mean, it's that that's why trying to focus on on one strategy or one tactic, uh, you can be easily derailed by a trade or an injury or whatnot. It's 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 a very fickle category. In a post on RonChandler.com, you discussed how difficult it is to project prospects. And uh, I'm wondering what first uh, some of the factors that you found that make it so tough to get the right read on a young player coming up to the majors. Well, I think there are just a lot of variables that affect whether or not a prospect will succeed in the majors, and if he does, how long it will take. You know, they, we all hope that they hit the ground running when they when they get called up. You know, like Chris Bryant or Mike Trout. But some players take time to adjust, not only to major league level competition, but but the entire lifestyle and culture of being a major leaguer. You know, we often talk about um, the, the cultural adjustment that foreign players go through, but you know, a kid who grew up in the small Midwestern town may have just as much adjustment playing in front of 40,000 screaming fans, so you just never know. And you can't project it from the minor league numbers alone. As much as we'd like to be, think we can, you just can't. Um, and we see it every year. How inexact is it, those uh, ma- major league equivalents of minor league statistics? Do we publish them? Uh, we do rely on them to a certain extent. Uh, I know they're going to be n- inherently less reliable than the usual Marcel the Monkey Plus adjustments that we do for guys who have major league track records, but even uh, they fail 70% of the time, as you said. Uh, what would be a comparable percentage rate of success if we look at MLEs? Oh, gosh, I, I really don't know. I, I think... Because there are so many uh, potential variables that could impact how a player uh, prospect performs upon call-up, I, I, I'd like to look at the MLBs as how how a, a player might do if uh, he reaches a level of consistent playing time and, and, and starts reaching his potential in the majors. So you know, whatever somebody does in AAA or AA before their call-up, I don't see that as what we can expect for them to do in year number one. I, I actually look at what they look at them as what we might expect in year number two or three. You know, like I said, the, uh, the experience risk that, that, that every player has to uh, overcome. So we really don't know who a, tr- a player's true, what his player's true ability is until his third year in the majors, I think. You provided a scan in the article of nine career trajectories for prospects coming up. Uh, Alex Rodriguez was in category six. Uh, player struggles for several seasons before finally breaking out. Uh, what more recent players also fit that classification? Uh, you know, we, we forget that several years ago, Gregory Polanco was receiving just as much hype as Chris Bryant uh, got last year. And it's taken Polanco now three years, like I was saying, to start reaching his potential. It's been similar with guys like uh, Jackie Bradley Jr. and Nick Castellanos. You know, some guys just need time and experience. And, uh, you know, as fantasy leaguers, we don't have the patience to wait them out in many cases. So uh, we get... Uh, disgruntled, we we lose patience, we 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 trade them away. But 
I look at, you know, and especially in keeper leagues, unless you can keep a player once they hit the majors for at least three seasons, you're really not going to see their true, true ability going forward. I was just going to say that uh, a lot of leagues, especially ones that run on the old traditional rules, when that guy comes up, you only get him for three years. You might only see his true potential just as you're about to be forced to let him go anyway, unless you're willing to throw another pile of risk onto the fire and, and say, okay, I'm going to sign him to a long-term contract, hoping that whatever happens in year three is the harbinger of good things to come in years four or five. Yeah, no, it, it's true. It's the, some of these leagues don't give you the, the, the proper opportunity to see what a player is going to do. Uh, yeah, we need to change that. I guess the trick is knowing which players are trajectory six and which are trajectory nine, which is simply player fails. Uh, what indicators are there in struggling players that give you signs of optimism that the player might be able to turn it around, maybe struggling in year one and two, but you see, what do you see in those years that gives you hope for year three and plus? Yeah, it's, it's not easy. There are two things really I look at. Uh, for one, I, I like to see some life in their, their peripheral uh, metrics, uh, even if the surface stats are flat. You know, sometimes you can find some optimism in the numbers. Uh, but the other thing I like to see is, is that their major league team continues to stick with them. You know, a guy like Nick Castellanos was out there every day, and the Tigers were putting him out there every day, even though his first two seasons in the majors were, were pretty mediocre. So I have to assume that the, their teams see something, even if the numbers are uninspiring. So, uh, but then, you know, even then, you, you can still end up with, uh, uh, you know, as a Jesus Montero or, or Dominic Brown. I mean, there are no guarantees in this, but uh, you, you look for anything you can find. And of course, uh, Jesus Montero, Dominic Brown were in organizations that don't have a tremendous track record of identifying and developing prospects, whereas there are other teams that do a much better job of that, and those are the ones that might be worth trusting a little more uh, as far as, uh, hey, they're willing to stick with him, I'm willing to stick with them. Uh, we know that there are better and worse organizations. Right, and Montero and Brown, both of them, were, were top 10 prospects several years back, so it's it's not like they weren't highly rated. They, I mean, they were right up there with, with some of the top players who have succeeded. So it's, you know, it, again, it's, in some ways it is a crapshoot. I remember seeing a list once with Mike Trout's name on it as a top prospect, and Dominic Brown was on the top of that list as a, as a prospect to watch for. And uh, Jesus Montero's an interesting story. Uh, Toronto picked him up and put him in AAA, and there were a bunch of stories in the preseason about maybe he's finally turned it around, he started getting in better shape, all of these kind of noisy type of uh, information that came out about Jesus Montero, and yet still he's not coming up, but he's blocked in a lot of ways too there's uh, some good ball players in toronto so you have to take that into account uh, how would you look at jesus montero and his chances for ever being an impact player in the big leagues no i, I look at him right now like brandon brandon wood i think it's 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 over you know they because they they came up with such hype and such expectation the teams are going to try to stick with them as long as they possibly can but eventually you just have to cut your losses and i i really don't see him becoming a, a productive major leaguer finally uh, all the trajectories that you listed were for hitters none for pitchers why is that well pitchers are tougher um they they still still fall into the same general categories but you know it's tougher to pin them down because there, there are more cases when a, when a good skilled pitcher is obscured by bad surface stats or, or vice versa so you know, I see a guy like Tyler Duffy, for instance, who's who's struggling, but his peripherals look just fine. You know, he's being killed uh, by the, the terrible Twins team around him. So I don't quite know where I would slot him. Uh, it's just very, it's just more difficult with pitchers. I slotted him on my roster. I'm not sure uh, how, how great that <laughs> is. 
Well, you never know. I mean, again, the peripherals look good, so there's I mean, as long as the 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 support metrics look good, I, I think there's always a shot for a player to turn it around at some point. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Ron Chandler from ronchandler.com. And Ron, in another column at your site, to ronchandler.com, you write that you hate fab bidding. Why is that? Yeah, I've written about this a lot too. Um, I've, I've always found it to be a disconnect that we are so careful with our scarce resources on draft day. We we, we predict players to the to uh, the dollar, and then we're afraid to go over a buck when uh, if, if our our list says 23, we're, we're hesitant to go 24. We, we're so precise with that. But when it comes to free agents, we basically fly blind and we're happy to do it. You know, whether I have $100 of fab or 1000 I have no clue what the appropriate amount to bid is. I, I personally, I really don't know. You, you, know, you assume that better players will garner higher bids, but, but how much? Uh, so you know, I look at it, I say, I, so let's say I think a player will go for $50 and I bid 60 well, if the player ends up going for 61, I'm kicking myself because I, I probably could have gone the extra two dollars to get him, but there's no way for me to react to that. But if I try to cover that risk by bidding, say, 75 dollars, then I've thrown away 14 precious dollars, and I hate throwing away scarce resources. I did a study a few years back and found that we tend to throw away as much as 50% of our FAB budget on overbids, and that makes absolutely no sense to me. So that's why I hate it. Isn't the problem here that FAB blind bidding is to fantasy baseball what Churchill said about democracy, the worst form of government except for all the others? Uh, you note correctly that the best form of FAB bidding would be a weekly open live auction, but uh, you also noted it's extremely impractical. So what are the alternatives to FAB that might be better? I, I mean, I have a perfect alternative. It's very simple for me. The commissioner services now need to offer like an eBay-style online auction function. Anyone can open an auction on a free agent at any time before the tranny deadline. Owners place their bids. It's an ongoing process until the deadline. I mean, the way eBay works, you know, if the current bid on a player is $10, I can place my personal maximum of, say, 25 and the system will register that I have a high bid of 11 and it's like an automated Vickery system, really, but done in real time. And you could always increase your max, so if the bidding is edging up to that $25 max, I can increase it. I mean, for me, it's clean, it's automated, and I always know what the market value for a player is. And I just don't know why nobody has embraced that yet. I mean, the, the capability, the engine to run that is out there, and it just seems like such a, an easy fix. You know, I never thought of it, but you're right. It would be a really easy thing to do. Uh, of course, you'd have to figure out some way of managing uh, what they call in the eBay world sniping, where somebody sits and waits till you know nine fifty nine fifty nine and and ninety nine one hundredths to to click that last bid in and snipe everybody out. And th there are problems with trying to fix that, frankly. But I think it's doable. eBay certainly has managed, as you said. Uh, it's an interesting thing. Uh, Ron, uh, during the season, as you know, I ask all our experts to talk about studs and duds for the balance of the season. Uh, not much of a balance of seasons, really, to uh, to talk about. But still, we need to acquire those hitters and pitchers who are going to help us and dump those ones who are going to hurt us. Let's start with this uh, the hitter side in the American League. Who's a stud hitter, somebody you think could have an impact uh, down the stretch. Yeah, I was kind of looking for maybe a few sleepers here for these players. Um, 
So, uh, in, in, in deeper leaps, probably, on the American League side, Eddie Rosario was uh, is interesting, because he was demoted back in May after hitting just around 200, but then he was in the minors, he hit over 300, and when he came back around uh, July 4th, he's been hitting over 330 since coming back. You know, he, I, I, it's... I mean, he's an interesting guy, I think, and you know, he's put up a, a decent season in 2015, and I think uh, he's rising back to those levels now. He was, he was, he was a draftable commodity on draft day, and people kind of forgot about him. And I think he, he could have a good uh, performance over the last six, seven weeks. And of course, uh, you mentioned that I sniped you on Jay Happ at the uh, AL Tout auction. You, you got me on Max Kepler, and boy, that was a good get for you as well. That's right. That's right. It's true. And and Kepler kind of went through that same process. Uh, he was uh, performed poorly, got demoted, and came back. It's done very, very well since he's since he's come back. Boy, has he ever uh, in the National League? Who's a, a hitter you like? Yeah, I, some folks were wondering if, if PEDs were what fueled D. Gordon's success. So I guess there was some speculation that he might not return from his suspension in vintage form. Uh, but that does not seem to be the case. I mean, he's only had about 45 out at bats since coming back, but uh, he's since his return, he's batting 333 with five stolen bases and five steals prorated and 45 at bats prorated over a full season is, is is a pace of 65 stolen bases. So he's he's back. He seems to be in vintage form. Uh, I'm sure glad to have him back on on my one team, though. Uh, unfortunately, it's probably a little bit uh, too little too late for me. It's an interesting thing about guys like that that we sometimes forget about in our roster planning, and that is guys you have who are on your roster but not playing but are scheduled back at a fixed time. Uh, I had Shin Su Chu on my reserve list uh, because he was on the DL for quite a while, and uh, I remembered not to be too aggressive bidding on outfielders because I knew, especially as his time to return from the DL was coming, this is like picking up a free agent, basically, for free, and uh, and really changes the shape of your roster. The same is doubly true of a guy like Gordon because of the impact he has on the category. Uh, who's a dud hitter in the American League, a guy you wouldn't want on your roster? Uh, well, this is tough for me to say as, as an owner, but I am a little worried about Mark Trumbo. Um, he's been hitting just about 214 since the beginning of July. And, uh, you know, you have him for his power, but his monthly home run to fly ball rate since May has gone uh, 26%, 24%, 19%, and 17% this month. So I, I think this is a player who's already far exceeded all expectations, and I worry that he may be digging himself a hole over the last part of the season. And, I mean, he's, he's carrying me on two of my leagues, and uh, I'm, I'm hesitant to say this, but I'm, I'm a little bit worried about him. And over in the National League, who's a hitter that you think is a dud for the balance? It probably coming into the first half of the first half of the season, we were looking at uh, Eduardo Nunez as, uh, as this year's most profitable player, the biggest surprise of the year. I mean, he was hitting out of his mind. Uh, but since the All-Star break, he's only been batting 191, and since his trade to the Giants, only about 229. So as much as we thought he was a new player, I, I guess some dogs don't change their spots. Uh, yeah, it's funny because at the end of the year, we're going to look back at his season and see his final stat line and still see it as a growth season. Um, but over these last few months, it, it may look pretty bad. But it'll be interesting to see what will go through next year's drafts. I'm, I'm not optimistic about the rest of this year, though. Yeah, it's it does have the shape of a, of a hot streak followed by a return to normal, and uh, it'll look better in the in the mirror than it's going to look uh, looking ahead. I think uh, Ron Chandler's yeah. hitters is American League stud Eddie Rosario of the Twins, National League D Gordon of Miami, his duds Mark Trumbo of Baltimore, 
and Eduardo Nunez of the San Francisco Giants. Uh, Ron, let's move over to the mound. Who's an American League pitcher that you'd like to have on your roster for the balance of the year? Well, I am a Michael Pineda owner, and I'm still holding out hope for him to have a streak in him. Um, I keep looking at his 517 ERA, but his peripherals are incredible. He's 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 striking out nearly 11 batters per game. He's walking only about two and a half. Uh, his 67% first pitch strike rate and 15% swinging strike rate are both elite levels and career highs for him. Uh, his, his 18% home run to fly ball rate is, has to be inflated, has to come down. Uh, his ERA has been killed by a, a, a 35% hit rate and a 65% strand rate, and, and I just there has to be a correction there somewhere. Even with uh, the Yankees bullpen being uh, significantly diminished, but I tell you, I I'm on my knees begging for uh, a correction here because uh, I own him and he could sure help me out. Of course, the home runs contribute to the uh, bad strand rate as well, and if those home runs get corrected, I think a lot of a lot of dominoes fall in in a favorable way. Uh, the question is, is the home run rate and the home run performance real, or is it is it is it due for regression for sure? It's an interesting question. A uh, National League pitcher who's a stud for you? Well, if you think about who the best starting pitcher is on the Cubs, uh, you naturally have to start with Jake Arrieta, but. Right behind him is, is not John Lester, it's not John Lackey, but Kyle Hendricks. Hendricks actually has the best ERA in that rotation, about a half run better than Arietta, the lowest whip and the lowest walk rate in the rotation. I mean, he's not as dominant as the other pitchers, but he probably cost a lot less than any of the others as well. Um, and in 15 starts since late May, he's given up even three runs only twice. He's just consistently good, and I think he's going to continue to be that way. I do like the consistency, especially I look at those PQS charts at BaseballHQ.com, and you, you look down that column and you think to yourself, boy, this guy's getting the job done, that's for sure. Uh, oh, back to the duds in the American League, who's a pitcher you want no part of? <laughs> you know, it's funny, I, I look at his numbers and I, I can't believe what I'm seeing, but in, in seven starts with, with the Texas Rangers, Lucas Harrell has four quality starts, three wins, and a 3.46 ERA, which... It, 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 I mean, it's a complete mirage. He's never put up numbers like that ever before. There's, there's nothing in his skills uh, that can support him maintaining these levels. He's walking four and a half batters per game. Uh, his, his 51% first pitch strike rate and 7% swinging strike rate are horrible. Uh, his 27% hit rate will surely normalize upward. And his XERA is five. I mean, it's it's... <laughs> which corresponds pretty nicely with his previous history. So uh, I've seen some uh, some players in some leagues picking him up, and you know even with the numbers he's putting up, I I stay far far away. And moving from that pitcher's park to Texas, uh, I, when I saw the trade, I thought, what the heck is Texas thinking here? And of course, now I imagine uh, a lot of people who picked him up, maybe including Texas management, is saying, aren't we smart? Uh, we'll, we shall see. Anything can happen in the short run. Maybe that's the story. Yep. Uh, and finally, a National League pitcher who's a dud for you for the balance of the year. Over the past few months, uh, many of us have been tracking a, a really a remarkable feat. Since mid-May, uh, over seven starts and 45 innings, Colorado pitcher Jonathan Gray has posted a 5-0 record and a 2.38 ERA in Coors Field. So we're looking at that and thinking maybe, just maybe, the Rockies have finally found a pitcher who can conquer Coors. 
But then this past Sunday, he gave up eight runs in three innings against the Marlins, so we'll just go back to the normal advice of avoiding Rockies pitchers. So it was a nice run for Gray, but uh, yeah, I, I don't I don't see him uh, keeping that up. Would you keep him and just start him on the road? Uh. You know, actually, Tyler Chatwood is a better pitcher for that uh, for that strategy because his road ERA is like one and change, and his home ERA is over five. So I actually rostered Chatwood in some of my leagues to do just that. Gray's splits are not quite as wide, but Chatwood's interesting to just uh, to uh, just deploy on the road. Great advice, Ron. Uh, I do appreciate you taking the time to talk with us again. It's always a treat to tell us where listeners can read more from Ron Chandler. Uh, well, my home base is ronshandler.com. Uh, I'm still writing every Wednesday at uh, ESPN.com. Uh, my Twitter handle is at Ron Chandler. On Facebook, uh, you can find me at uh, uh, facebook.com slash ronshandler.baseball. And uh, we haven't mentioned this, but I will be speaking at uh, First Pitch Arizona at uh, about Babs. So I'll be there this, this fall uh, to talk about Babs in more depth with anyone who's interested. Fantastic. Ron, thanks a million. Hey, thanks, Patrick. I appreciate it. Ron Chandler is the founder of BaseballHQ.com. He now writes for his own website, ronchandler.com, and for ESPN. We have our Baseball HQ radio commentaries coming up, but first let me tell you about BaseballHQ.com and why we call it the best fantasy baseball website in the business. It's because BaseballHQ.com is ready to keep you ahead of the game all season long with content across a wide range of great information. During the season, BaseballHQ.com has regular daily analysis of news and rosters and ongoing analysis of player performance and skills. This week at the site, we have a series celebrating the 20th anniversary of BaseballHQ.com by looking back at HQ articles over the years. In Playing Time Tomorrow, Mike Shears looks at Jorge Polanco in Minnesota, the catcher situation in Cleveland, and other American League Central roster coverage. And in Facts and Flukes performance validation, Dave Adler analyzes Hugh Darvish, Melky Cabrera, and other players. BaseballHQ.com also has daily matchups, reports, and a daily fantasy dashboard, a minor league scouting department, and projections and other roster management tools you can use to help you dominate your competition. It's all only at the website with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners, BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for our regular Friday commentaries. Coming up, we do have playing time, frequent flyers, our weekend pitcher matchups, and master notes. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a report on Cincinnati third base prospect Nick Senzel is BaseballHQ.com minor leagues analyst Rob Gordon. With their club mired in last place, Cincinnati Reds fans haven't had a lot to cheer about in 2016, but help should be on the way in the form of first-round pick Nick Senzel. The 21-year-old Senzel was the second pick in the 2016 draft after a standout career at the University of Tennessee. Senzel has plus bat speed and a powerful compact stroke that should result in plus power once he reaches the majors. Senzel also has a good understanding of the strike zone and makes consistent hard contact. Defensively, Senzel has worked hard to improve at third base, and he now profiles as at least average with a slightly above average arm. Speed isn't going to be a big part of his game, but he's a smart player and runs well underway. Senzel has been impressive in his pro debut. Since moving up to high A in the Midwest League, Nick Senzel is hitting 310 with a 414 on base percentage and a 556 slugging percentage with 9 doubles and 6 home runs and 126 at bats. For those looking for a long-term impact player, Nick Senzel makes a great keeper and should be targeted in all deep keeper leagues. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. 
Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. This week, our extensive prospect coverage includes ongoing daily call-ups coverage of prospects like Houston right-handed pitcher Jandel Gustave, St. Louis right-hander Alex Reyes, and many other prospects. And we have other scouting features like The Eyes Have It, where Chris Blessing takes us out to the ball games to scout Seattle outfield prospect Tyler O'Neill and Chicago White Sox outfield prospect Adam Engel. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's time for our Playing Time segment, where we look at situations that could mean players getting more playing time or losing at-bats or innings. In this week's edition, we'll look at Jet Bandy of the Angels and Brett Anderson of the Dodgers, who could produce stretch-run profit in L.A. And here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield. Angels catcher Jet Bandy made a few cameos on BaseballHQ.com this past week. First in Stephen Nick Grant's Batter's Buyer's Guide as a Keeper League building block, and later in the week by HQ Radio's own Jock Thompson, where he noted that Bandy's starting to receive more playing time behind the dish out in Anaheim. The former University of Arizona backstop has had a fine rookie season as Bandy's hitting 278 with six homers in his first 115 at-bats in part-time duty. Bandy's production is backed up by some solid underlying skills as well, namely an 83% contact rate with raw power metrics roughly 15% above league average. Giovanni Soto really stands as Bandy's main competition for an everyday role, as Carlos Perez was recently optioned down to AAA. The edge is firmly in Bandy's court over Soto here, as a 33-year-old Soto is just coming off knee injury, and he's a long shot to take over regular playing time. Soto's skills have also waned in recent seasons, and he hasn't posted an on-base percentage over 330 since the 2010 season. So deeper mixed and ale only owners looking for that second catcher will certainly want to take a look at Jet Bandy the rest of the way. The skills and potential for everyday playing time should lead to profit down the stretch. And keeper league owners should look at Bandy who's just 26 and we know that catchers tend to develop later in their careers compared to other positions. Which makes Jet Bandy a sneaky snag behind the dish entering 2017. To the National League, we head out to L.A., where BaseballHQ.com analyst Joseph Pitleski recently gave a rundown on the Dodgers' rotation outlook through the rest of the season in his playing time tomorrow column. Newly acquired starter Rich Hill continues to be out with the most persistent blister of all time, while Bud Norris and obviously Clayton Kershaw are still on the DL. This is going to create an opportunity for Brett Anderson to get some starts down the stretch. Anderson's nearing a return from back surgery in March, but his minor league rehabs have gone well as he's pitching in AAA. Anderson managed to pitch 180 innings last season, posting a 369 ERA. He boasts an elite ground ball rate that's been at or above 60% in each of his last four seasons. Though Anderson doesn't miss many bats, his strikeouts per nine has hovered around six or seven throughout his career. Brett Anderson certainly isn't an elite upside play by any means, but his ability to keep the ball on the ground should result in a decent ERA in deeper leagues. With plenty of question marks throughout LA's rotation, Anderson will be leaned on as long as he can stay healthy. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com.
Ryan Bloomfield is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has his playing time commentary here at the Baseball HQ Radio Podcast every week. Now it's time for our frequent flyers comment, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyers, Yankees outfielder Aaron Judge and Houston starter Joe Musgrove. And here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky. It's official, the Yankees' Alex Rodriguez era ends tonight, August 12, 2016, and new era will be ushered in, one where the Yankees plan to become younger and more athletic. Are you ready for your team to become younger and more athletic? In this week's edition for Good Flyers, we'll profile a younger player who could be called up to replace Alex Rodriguez of the Yankees roster and athletic Houston pitcher who started this season's Futures game. But first, as we mentioned, a new era is beginning for the New York Yankees. Could that era begin with the promotion of outfielder Aaron Judge? With the trade of Carlos Beltran to the Rangers, it appears that the Yankees have an opening in right field. Plus, a release of Alex Rodriguez opens up more possibilities at DH. Perhaps one of those possibilities should be Aaron Judge. Could it happen right away? According to New York Daily News, Yankees owner Hal Steinbrenner said they talked to Alex Rodriguez about the guys that really deserve a chance to be here and mentioned Gary Sanchez along with Tyler Austin and Aaron Judge. A former first-round selection by the New York Yankees in the 2013 draft, Aaron Judge led all Yankees minor leaguers in both home runs and RBI in 2015. Through his first 92 games at AAA in 2016, Aaron Judge again leads the Scranton Wilkes-Barre Rail Riders in home runs with 18 and RBI with 63, and he currently ranks in the top five in both of those categories in the International League. Prior to the season, BaseballHQ.com ranked Aaron Judge as one of our top 75 impact prospects for 2016. But of course you already knew that. Aaron Judge has gained quite a reputation as a top prospect. So the real question becomes, when will Aaron Judge officially join the New York Yankees? To be clear, we don't know for sure when he'll be called up. That's why Aaron Judge, like all of our frequent flyers, are long shots, who may be worth a flyer if they are available in your league. However, some signs are pointing to a possible promotion this weekend, perhaps as early as Saturday, August 13th. If so, Aaron Judge won't last long on the waiver wire. Grab him if he's still available. Speaking of players who won't last long on the waiver wire, let's now turn our attention to the Houston Astros 2015 Minor League Pitcher of the Year, Joe Musgrove, who has struck out 14 batters in 11 and one-third innings since making his Major League debut on August 2nd. That's right, the 23-year-old right-hander went 12-1 with a 188 ERA through three levels of the minors in 2015 on his way to becoming the Astros Pitcher of the Year. According to our Major League Equivalencies model at BaseballHQ.com, Joe Musgrove's 188 ERA in 2015 would be equivalent to a 251 ERA at the Major League level. Drafted by the Blue Jays in the first round of the 2011 draft, then traded to Houston in a 10-player deal in 2012, Joe Musgrove blanked his former team, the Toronto Blue Jays, in his Major League debut on August 2nd, throwing four and one-third scoreless innings while striking out eight in relief of Lance McCullers, who left the game in the top of the fifth inning due to an injury. Joe Musgrove followed up that effort by making his first major league start on August 7th against the Texas Rangers, where he allowed one earned run and struck out six in seven innings pitched. 
That adds up to a .79 ERA through his first two major league games. Sure, it's a small sample size, but in six appearances, four starts. For the AA Corpus Christi Hooks in 2016, Joe Musgrove produced a 2-1 record with a .34 ERA. In other words, Joe Musgrove only allowed one earned run in six appearances or one earned run in 26 total innings pitched this season at AA. Promoted to the AAA Fresno Grizzlies on May 13th, Joe Musgrove posted a 5-3 record with a 3.81 ERA before joining the Astros on August 2nd. His dominance rate of nine strikeouts per game in the minors in 2016 places him among baseball's best pitchers, according to BaseballHQ.com. Plus, Joe Musgrove has exhibited excellent control by allowing the equivalent of only one walk per game in the minors in 2016. But perhaps our own Jack Thompson in the August 2nd edition of Playing Time Tomorrow on BaseballHQ.com summed it up best when he said, At a time when good pitchers are in short supply, Joe Musgrove is flyer-worthy regardless of his immediate role. Assuming that Joe Musgrove can nail down a starting role, that makes two flyer-worthy players to add to your team. Aaron Judge and Joe Musgrove, our frequent flyers for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has our frequent flyers comment here on the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Now it's our weekend pitcher matchups report. Matchups are rated on a scale centered on zero. Pitchers rated plus one or higher are strong bets for you to start. Those under minus one are strong bets for you to sit. In between the ones, you'll have to gauge that based on your own risk tolerance and league context. With a look at four weekend matchups, including a Sunday interleague faceoff between top righty Zach Greinke of Arizona and Rick Porcello of Boston in Fenway Park, here's BaseballHQ.com analyst Greg Fishwick. In honor of the United States National Park Service's 100th anniversary this year, my wife and I just returned from a visit to the granddaddy of them all, Yellowstone. 45 years ago, at the 1971 All-Star Game, National League manager Sparky Anderson was asked how his cleanup hitter, Willie Stargell, might do in the American League's cavernous Tiger Stadium. Anderson famously quipped, quote, He's got power enough to hit home runs in any park, including Yellowstone, unquote. It took us three days to see the entire park, so you can bet none of this weekend's venues will be that pitcher-friendly. In fact, only Dodger Stadium in Chavez Ravine suppresses run production. Chicago's Wrigley Field and Toronto's Rogers Center both play neutral, and Boston's Fenway Park enhances run production. Our weekend matchups lineup looks like this. On Saturday, the Pirates storm the ship in L.A. with Garrett Cole at Brandon McCarthy, while the rest of the action takes place on Sunday. We'll visit the friendly confines for Mike Leake at John Lackey, review an interleague matchup with Zach Grenke at Rick Porcello in Fenway Park, and examine an American League matchup with Mike Fires at Marcus Stroman in Canada. Despite logging just seven starts since beginning the bumpy road back from Tommy John surgery and walking five in each of his past two outings, Brandon McCarthy has the matchup rating edge against Garrett Cole. Both are in the risk-reward wildcard range, McCarthy at 045 and Cole at minus 074. Pegged as having Cy Young Award upside in this year's baseball forecaster, Cole has disappointed. In 17 starts, he has a PQS dominant to disaster ratio of 29% dominant to 24% disaster. Cole's average PQS score on the road is 2. 
McCarthy, of course, has a much smaller sample of work for 2016. In four starts at home, he's averaging a PQS score of 2.5. After lasting five innings in each of his first two home starts, McCarthy has failed to exceed four innings in each of his past two outings at Dodger Stadium. He holds the advantage over Cole mainly because for their past 30 games, the Dodgers have the second-best record in Major League Baseball. And over their past 20 games, they're third-best. At home, L.A. is fourth-best, and against right-handers, it's fifth-best. Can you guess where the Dodgers run differential rates? You're right if you said sixth-best. In their past 20 games, the Pirates are 10-10. On the road and against right-handers, they're six games below 500. Versus teams at or above 500, they're nine games below 500. Overall, Pittsburgh has scored fewer runs than it's allowed, so L.A. clearly has the superior team. Both pitchers have been a bit lucky, McCarthy benefiting from a hit rate of 22% and Cole from a strand rate of 76%, and neither is worth the risk this weekend. Our other National League matchup is on Sunday in Chicago, where the world-class Cubs host their arch-rival St. Louis Cardinals. Again, the two starting pitchers are both in the risk-reward wildcard matchup rating range, and again, the home team's hurler has an edge. The Cubs' John Lackey has a matchup rating of minus 0-1-0, and the Cards' Mike Leake has a matchup rating of minus 0-2-0. Chicago's Northsiders are simply the best team in MLB, featuring a positive run differential of nearly two runs per game, and the best records in their past 10, 20, and 30 games. St. Louis struggles against teams at or above 500, losing a dozen more games than they've won. But the Cardinals also have the best road record in the majors. 37-year-old John Lackey borders on incredible. Over 23 starts, he has a BPV of 112, 151 strikeouts and 150 innings pitched, a first pitch strike rate of 68%, a swinging strike rate of 12%, and a PQS dominant to disaster ratio of 43% dominant to 17% disaster. In 12 starts at home, Lackey has an average PQS score just above 3. In his 23 starts, Leak also has a BPV over 100 at 104. But in 139 innings pitched, he has only 96 strikeouts, a first pitch strike rate of 60%, a swinging strike rate of 7%, and a PQS dominant to disaster ratio of 26% dominant to 35% disaster. In 12 starts on the road, Leak has an average PQS score of 2.3 and 6 PQS disasters, including three of his past four outings. Only Lackey is worth the risk in this one, so stay away from Leak if you can. We also have an interleague matchup and an American League matchup on Sunday. In his second start since returning from the disabled list for an oblique injury, Zach Grenke is in Boston to pit his risk-reward wildcard matchup rating of 0-14 against the Red Sox' Rick Porcello and his recommended start matchup rating of 123. Against right-handers, Boston is 10 games over 500 and Arizona is 19 games under 500. The D-backs are a game over 500 on the road, but the Bosox are nine games over 500 at home. Boston has the third best run differential in MLB at plus .7 runs per game, and the Snakes rank 28th, allowing a run more per game than they score. The two starters have identical BPVs of 115 and nearly identical control rates of 1.5 walks per nine for Rick Porcello and 1.7 walks per nine for Zach Grenke. In eight road starts, Grenke has five PQS dominant outings and only one PQS disaster, which was in Coors Field. Without that one, Grenke would be averaging a PQS score just above four on the road. Rick Porcello is on a roll. 
Five of his past six starts have been PQS dominant, including three at home. In 12 home outings this season, he has eight PQS dominant starts and only one PQS disaster, averaging a PQS score of 3.6. Boston is the better team, and Greinke may not get a win, but both he and Porcello are worthy of starting for you. In our American League matchup, the Astros' Mike Fires has a recommended sit matchup rating of minus 141, heading into Toronto to face Marcus Stroman and his risk-reward wildcard matchup rating of minus 0.02. The Blue Jays have the same run differential as the Red Sox at 0.7 runs per game, and at home, they too are nine games over 500. Toronto torments right-handers, ranking third with 17 more wins than losses. And they're tied with the Cubs for the best record over their past 30 games with 19 wins and 11 losses. Houston has losing records over its past 10, 20, and 30 games. And on the road, it's five games below 500. Against teams at or above 500, the Astros are nine games below 500. Taking on Toronto north of the border is a tough task for any team, and Houston does not appear up to it. Mike Fires fired a PQS 4 against the Jays just 10 days ago at home in Minute Maid Park, striking out a season-high 7. But the good news ends there. Overall, Fires has a PQS dominant-to-disaster ratio of 29% dominant to 43% disaster. In nine road starts, his average PQS score is under 2 and features 5 PQS disasters. In 51 and a third innings pitched on the road, Fires has allowed 34 earned runs for an ERA of 596. Steer clear of Fires if you can. Marcus Stroman enjoyed a fine first year in 2014 and flashed a strong finish to last season following his recovery from knee surgery, but he has disappointed fantasy owners in 2016. However, his skills support a better fate. A strand rate of only 65% has contributed to his surface ERA of 476, but his expected ERA is 352, and his BPV is 105. In four home starts since a PQS disaster zero against Baltimore June 9, Stroman has three PQS dominant outings and an average PQS score of four. Like Fires and his PQS 4 against Toronto, Stroman had a PQS 4 in his lone start against the Astros in the Lone Star State, August 1. But Stroman struck out 13 in 7 innings, giving up only 3 hits and a walk. He's worth the risk. So as you consider visiting a nearby or far-flung national park this summer, also consider starting John Lackey, Zach Greinke, Rick Porcello, and Marcus Stroman this weekend, while avoiding Brandon McCarthy, Garrett Cole, Mike Leake, and Mike Fires. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a Baseball HQ analyst and has his weekend pitcher matchup segment here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. This week I want to talk about using games remaining and opposition quality to assess and develop your roster. Suppose you're negotiating a deal with someone in your league. He's accepted your part of the offer and in return has given you the names of two outfielders and told you to pick one. The two hitters' skills and power-speed profiles are similar enough that there's no clear distinction between them on that basis. You could just toss a coin, but there's something else for you to consider, especially this deep into the season. That consideration comes in two parts. First, how many games does each player's team have left to play? And second, against what quality of teams will they be played? Because of the regular rhythms of the schedule, it's easy to fall into the belief that all the teams make their way through the schedule at the same pace, and roughly speaking, against opponents who all even out over the same pace. 
In the long run, the full season, that's true, although divisional imbalances can mean some teams have a tougher or easier go of it than others. But in the short run, like with less than a third of the season to go, there are several imbalances in both quantity and quality that the canny fantasy owner can exploit to his advantage. Let's start simply, just with the number of games remaining. The games remaining table has 14 teams with 49 games to go and 8 more with 48. That's most of the teams and there's not much advantage between them. But at the margins, there's a significant gap, especially when we're thinking about hitters. At the high end, Cleveland and Pittsburgh have 51 games left. Boston, Chicago Cubs, and Milwaukee have 50. That's four or five more games than teams at the low end, like Philadelphia with 46, and Toronto and Texas, who have 47. This gap means if you are choosing a Cleveland or Pittsburgh regular hitter over one from Philadelphia, Toronto, or Texas, you'd pick up four or five extra games. That's 20 or 25 more plate appearances, and in the short run, that's a very useful advantage in the counting stats. We can also break this examination down further by home and away games remaining, knowing that hitters tend to do better at home. Cleveland leads all the teams in home games remaining with 30, but oddly enough, the second-place team is Texas. Remember, they have the second-fewest games remaining overall, but they have the second-most at home with 29. Boston, an overall games remaining leader, is tied with St. Louis for the fewest home games remaining, just 20 games in their home ballparks. And Toronto? Well, they have the worst of both worlds. They have only 47 games remaining, which is second fewest in baseball, and only 22 of their games at home, which is the fourth fewest. So the moral of this part of the story is that all other things being equal, and yes, I know they seldom are, you might enjoy some playing time and counting stat dividends by targeting hitters from Milwaukee, the Cubs, Boston, Pittsburgh, and especially Cleveland, which also enjoys that home games remaining advantage. At the same time, it might also pay you to avoid players from Philadelphia, St. Louis, Toronto, and maybe Texas, keeping in mind that the Rangers' overall disadvantage in games remaining is somewhat ameliorated by a pretty solid homeward tilt. The other part of team value, as it might affect hitters, is the quality of the opposition. Again, all else being equal, and I know it seldom is, we'd want to have hitters who get to ply their trades against teams that surrender a lot of runs. The game-wide average runs per game is around 4.40, so I looked for teams about 10% higher, that is worse, than the game-wide average, or 10% lower, which is better. The higher teams, the worse ones, are Cincinnati, Arizona, Colorado, San Diego, and Oakland, ranging from 5.46 runs per game to 4.80, while the lower, better teams are the Cubs, Washington, the Mets, LA Dodgers, and San Francisco. What you want, of course, is a hitter on a team facing the most possible bad teams. The leader in that category is the Dodgers, with 24, fully half of their games remaining against the Satter Sacks, seven each against Arizona and Colorado, four against Cincinnati, and six against San Diego. Meanwhile, the Dodgers have just 12 games against the good teams, including nine against rival San Francisco, and 12 more against the neutral teams close to the average in the middle. San Francisco, Arizona, and San Diego have just under 20 games remaining apiece against bad teams, but also nearly 20 each against good teams. Little bit of National League West bias here, I think. 
Kansas City has only 13 games remaining against bad teams and none against good. There are other teams with no games remaining versus good teams and who should therefore be of interest. Detroit, the White Sox, Boston, Cleveland, Oakland, Seattle, Tampa, Texas, and Toronto. Among these, Oakland has no games against bad teams either. All 48 of their games remaining are against neutral opposition. Minnesota and the Yankees have three games each against good teams and no games against bad teams. Keep that in mind. And Atlanta and Cincinnati, already having awful seasons, get little respite from the schedule. Both teams have far more games against good teams than bad. But the worst in that department is Philadelphia. Just three games against bad teams and 20 against the good. Finally, I made a quick Excel spreadsheet to figure out expected runs for and against all the teams in Major League Baseball, taking the average of each team's current runs scored and runs against numbers for each team pairing, then multiplying by the number of games for an estimate of how many total runs each team will score or surrender. The full table is part of a PDF package linked in the online version of this comment, but suffice to say the top run scoring teams track the game's remaining totals pretty closely. Boston, the Cubs, Cleveland, they score a lot of runs anyway and they have a lot of runs left. They're the top three, while the bottom, the Mets, Atlanta and Philadelphia. As far as allowing runs, games remaining seems to have less influence than the quality of the pitching staff. The top three in runs allowed per game are Washington, the Mets, and the Cubs. The bottom three, Cincinnati, Arizona, and Milwaukee. Now this is all a pretty big package of data to sift through and think about. If I had to summarize it in a few recommendations, and I do because they make me at BaseballHQ.com, Here's what I'd say. First, don't acquire a guy just because he's on a favorable team. Skills trump everything. The idea here is to use team connections, games remaining, and quality of opponent to break ties or close calls between similar players. Don't use the team info here to assess pitchers. There's just too few games left for each starter, and there's too much performance variation in the short run anyway. Target the hitters on Cleveland, Boston, and the Cubs. They all have extra games relative to the pack. They all have at least some exposure to poor run-preventing teams and limited exposure to good run-preventing teams. Detroit hitters have 10 shots at poor teams and no good ones to worry about, so keep them in mind. Kansas City also has a 13 to nothing bad-to-good ratio. And be wary of acquiring hitters from Cincinnati, Colorado, Pittsburgh, San Diego, and San Francisco. All those teams play a lot of games against the better run prevention squads. And finally, remember you can do this due diligence easily and quickly on your own. When faced with a choice between two similar hitters, quickly check both teams' games remaining and rest of season schedules and see if there's an edge to be gained. Yes, it might be small, but at this time of the year in fantasy baseball, small edges are likely to be all you're going to get. Remember, go to BaseballHQ.com for the online edition of this Master Notes, and you can get a PDF with the charts and tables accompanying this article. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your own email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 12th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 39 of the 2016 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guests for this Friday edition of the show, Ron Chandler from ronchandler.com at ESPN. Ron's a great guy, a 
a major figure in the fantasy baseball industry and something of a personal mentor for me when I got into this business and I've been proud to be part of BaseballHQ.com for almost 20 years. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Minor League Minute Analyst was Rob Gordon. Our Playing Time commentator was Ryan Bloomfield. Our Frequent Flyers commentator was Alex Becky. And our Pitcher Matchups Analyst was Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. And please send us a message on our email address, BHQRadio, all one word, at gmail.com, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday when our feature guest expert will be the fantasy baseball Zen master. It's Lore Michaels of MastersBall.com on the next edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Congratulations again to Ichiro Suzuki on becoming the latest member of the 3000 Hit Club and so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.